This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. Hello and welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. This episode, I sit down with clarinetist, saxophonist, and arranger Bill Tomchak. Bill started playing clarinet at the age of nine. After a typical round of high school bands and concerts, he entered Northwestern University as a music major and studied under several teachers from the Chicago Symphony. In 1979, he discovered the world of international folk dancing and has been playing for folk dance of one kind or another ever since. He developed a reputation as a tasteful and innovative improviser who learned to blend seamlessly into a wide variety of fiddle styles, practically defining a whole new tradition for contradance clarinet and saxophone playing. Bill now plays for contradancing and English country dancing with the Latter-day Lizards, Campaign for Real Time, and Fine Companions. He has recorded with the Latter-day Lizards, BLT, Wild Asparagus, and Yankee Ingenuity, and appears on recordings with Mary Lee and Friends. In 2020, Bill joined the Portland Mega Band and is now the chief arranger for the horn section. Bill has performed throughout the United States and in Canada and Europe, and has regularly appeared at dance festivals and camps all over the country. In our conversation, Bill talks about his time studying clarinet and how this eventually led him away from classical music and then to traditional music. Weaving us through his path between computer programming and music, we learn about the pivotal moments that led to his deep involvement in the international music scene. And he tells us all about how he forged his way as a clarinet player in the world of Contra. We explore the technical nuances of his style, in which he studied numerous kinds of dance music to ultimately create a style all his own, and his strategies for playing for contradances. And we look at the musical tradition of contradancing from a few different angles. Let's dive in.
Well, hello, Bill Tomchek, and welcome to ContraPulse. Howdy doody, what a treat this is. I am so happy to have you here. This is so great. Are you in uh, Portland, Oregon at the moment? Yes, not the other Portland. The, the Portland that actually was named after Portland, Maine, in fact. It was named after Portland, Maine? Yeah, from, from a coin oh. toss. What was the other choice? Now I'm really curious. Oh, uh, gosh, I can't remember what the other choice well, is now. Anyone could Wikipedia it, I guess. I'm sure it's this on there. This is the internet age. It's all out there for you. Yeah, all the answers <laughs> are there. Yeah. Um, well, hello. It's it, This is great because um, we have never met before. Never. Although I feel once. like we have. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's, how is that possible? Just because I've heard you play so many times. And when I was like a new dancer and dancing a lot, I danced a lot to like Latter-day Lizards and you with other folks in New England. And Did you ever come up and say are. hi? I was shy. Yeah, I know. I know how that works. You know, everybody is. Also, what would I say? You know? <laughs> and then when I'm on stage, I'm like, how come people don't come up and talk to me? I want them all to come talk to me. But it's the same thing, right? Like, yeah. they feel the same way. Or I'm not interesting to talk to. But, <laughs> and, and, you know, but uh, anyway, so this will be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so a lot of folks know you as a clarinet player. Uh, you play a couple other instruments, um, but I would just love to start from the very beginning of uh, how you started playing music <laughs> and then eventually how you found your way to playing for concert dances. Well, when I was a young lad, uh, I actually started playing the clarinet for all the wrong reasons. Uh, it was like third grade. And uh, this guy who I think of as my nemesis uh, was um, he was promoted to the third grade from a lower grade. It had to do with birthdays and the way they were handled. And uh, there was this kind of uh, music man thing happening. This guy showed up at our school saying, we're going to start a band and he's going to teach everybody all these instruments. And he got us all to buy instruments. And the only reason I started playing the clarinet was because my nemesis, whose name also happened to be Bill, uh, started playing the clarinet. So, of course, I had to because we had this whole little competitive thing going. Um, and just like in The Music Man, Mr. Music Man uh, got us to buy all the instruments, taught a few lessons, disappeared. Oh. <laughs> it was just like in the play, in the, in the, in the Broadway play. So, so that was that. But I actually at that point was into it. So I started taking lessons at the Carnivali School of Music. And my teacher was fantastic. Uh, and I, I credit him with keeping me playing music for the rest of my life because I had so much fun at his lessons. I don't know that he even played the clarinet because my lessons consisted of him playing the accordion and me reading out of the, the polka book that we worked with. <laughs> and he was a blast. I was having a blast. It was just great. And then, you know, he moved on with his life after a few years, a couple of years, whatever. And he was replaced by this guy. The main thing, I don't remember his name. All I remember was sitting in this um, dank, completely windowless room and him waving his cigar around saying, breathe, breathe. So anyway, uh, I hated him. He had this idea that I was going to become some famous, you know, classical clarinet 
player in some major symphony and I really didn't care. I was having too much fun with the other guy. Mm-hmm. So I quit. So, but my mother would take me to the high school band concerts and I was fascinated. I loved them. I just like, it was like one of my favorite times of the year when uh, the high school band was having their concerts. And uh, it was uh, eighth grade and I was getting ready to go into high school. And mm-hmm. I thought, I want to be in the band. Mm-hmm. Of course, I haven't played the clarinet in, I don't know, three, four, five years, whatever it was. And uh, uh, so I, you know, pulled it out of the case and I played like shit. It was just terrible. And, and this is a story I have never told anyone publicly. My mother's dead, so I can say it now. My father as well. Uh, I was so frustrated. I took the clarinet and I broke it over my leg. Wow. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I was just like, <gasps> so I went to my parents and like, I don't know what happened. It just kind of broke. You know, it was like, and it was like just completely broken in half. And um, God bless the uh, guy at Carnivale School of Music. He said, oh, yeah, these things can happen. <laughs> he was getting a new purchase out of there. Right? He's getting a new sale right. out of it. So, so I got a new clarinet. Uh, and for summer school, there was a, the band, high school band had sort of a summer school band class. And I weaseled my way into the, the upper level band class somehow. And I will never forget Mr. Erst, Mr. Ernst, Mr. Erst, Mr. Erst. Yeah, it was always like Erst or Ernst. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, I, re- I remember him greeting me at the door to the band room. He walks me over, doesn't say a word, walks me over to the very last seat in the last row of clarinets and just points. It's like, that's your seat. So it turns out, uh, uh, shockingly, I was very talented. Which uh, a later teacher uh, basically accused me of as an insult more than anything else. Uh, but it meant that I rose up through the ranks uh, of my high school band really quickly. And by my sophomore year, I was playing in the Chicago All-City Band. Uh, by my junior year, I was uh, playing um, in the first row of clarinets. And there was this big competition between me and this guy, Mitch who, uh, you know, which one of us were supposed to be first chair clarinet. And he always got first chair because he went to the right school. Um, and uh, and that year, they also started the All-City Theater Troupe, in which I got to play bass clarinet, regular clarinet that I knew, and uh, the piccolo clarinet, the E-flat clarinet, mm-hmm. for West Side Story. That is one of the greatest, most fondest memories I have of playing music. Uh, and then uh, between my junior and senior year, uh, the plan was already laid out. I'd actually already gone to colleges and stuff. I was going to become an engineering student because I'd also been messing around with computers throughout high school. Uh, and uh, I went to this three-week-long program at Northwestern University. And it was great fun, met a lot of great people. It was the first time I'd been away from home more than, you know, like a half a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just like this whole new world opened up to me and I discovered I was this whole other person that I didn't even know who I was. Mm. And it involved playing music and I met these great people, uh, ended up dating this, uh, this person from uh, St. Louis, Missouri, um, who I ended up like driving down to visit her every weekend during summer break the following year. Uh, it was great. It was fantastic. 
But, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, I got the music thing out of my system, back to engineering. You know, this is just not, I, I'm never going to be a musician. Um, John Painter was the director of that whole program. And at the very end of that week, those that three weeks, one of the counselors came and talked to me and said, you know, Mr. Painter specifically picked you out as, as someone that he would love to see come to Northwestern as a music major. And I was like, ridiculous. You know, it's like, I'm going in engineering. I've already like picked out some schools I'm going to, you know, apply to and everything. And he said, no, really, it's like, you should really consider this because he thought you're like far to, uh, away and above, you know, like one of the better students that were here this summer, which, you know, this is the first time an adult ever said to me, you should do this. Up until then, it was like adults were always like, yeah, you could do that if you want. <laughs> so I really thought about it. I said, like, yeah, but I don't know if I can afford it. Northwestern's an expensive school. And he said, don't worry. Mr. Painter has already said he'll do whatever it takes to get you to come to Northwestern financially. How can you say no to that? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Um my, my mother didn't quite think that. Uh, after a couple of weeks at home thinking about it, I, I will never forget sitting in the kitchen with my mother working away doing something at the stove. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table and, and I've made the, my decision. I said to my mom, well, I've decided I want to go into music school. I want to, I want to become a music major. And I, I, <laughs> this image is burned in my head. My mother's working at the stove. She just like throws down whatever she's got in her hand, turns to me and so like, why do you want to do that? You're not a musician. <laughs> I, I did it anyway. I ignored her. So, uh, so I was a major music major at Northwestern for two years. Uh, and the first year I was there, the great God of all things clarinet had just arrived as the primary clarinet professor at Northwestern. This guy, uh, Robert Marcellus, who played for the Cleveland Orchestra. So all of a sudden, all the best clarinet players in the world have descended on Northwestern. And here I am, mm. this guy who just kind of messed around with clarinet most of his life. And now I'm like in the middle of this hotbed of clarinet genius. And I actually did pretty well. I was like kind of middling good in that crowd, uh, which, of course, made me feel like, well, I suck. Right. And people would say, it's like, yeah, well, but you suck among some of the best clarinet players in the world. Like, yeah. That doesn't help. I still suck. <laughs> uh, and by the time I, I think about two weeks into my uh, junior year, I decided to, I, I just, I was reading a, a, a thing on Buddhism. Uh, I was taking an intro to Buddhism class and I was like, finally cracked a book about two weeks into my junior year. And I started like reading this thing and it was like 10 or 11 pages in. And I realized I don't remember a single word, concept, idea, thought that I just read. This is wasting everybody's time and money. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I just put the book down, walked across the street where the registrar's office was, quit school and then called my parents and said, Oh, guess what I did today? Wow. You can imagine how thrilled they were. Uh, and then I kind of, I went hitchhiking around the country for a while. I came back to Northwestern. I started talking around to the, all of my professors and it's like saying, okay, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I don't know where I'm going. And, uh, 
you know, uh, I'm just like looking for what kinds of options might be available for me in the music world. Because they still had this idea that somehow I'd be involved in music in my professional life. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Marcellus, the great god of all things clarinet, said to me, oh, it's too late. You'll never be a clarinet player. Or no, he said, you'll never be a musician. So I was like, okay. So put me Was he serious away. about that? Oh, totally. Because he thought you were too old or why did he say that? I wasn't good enough. Mm. And I wasn't serious enough. And I wasn't blah, 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 whatever. Well, by musician, he I'm sure he meant a very specific kind of musician. It took me a few years to figure that out. But, you know, I was yeah. like in my 20s. I was, you know, still in college. I didn't really understand mm -hmm. how any of this worked. But yeah, you're right. That's exactly, I think that's exactly my assessment of, of where he was coming from. Uh, nonetheless, I just stopped playing entirely. And this was uh, 1976, fall of 76. So uh, fall of 77, I started thinking, I was working as a waiter and thought, uh, gee, I, I probably ought to think about what I'm doing with my career. And I... Uh, Thought, well, I used to mess around with computers when I was in high school. Maybe I can get a computer programming job. Mm -hmm. And shockingly, I did. So I got my first computer programming job in Chicago. Uh, worked in downtown Chicago for about a year and a half or so. So uh, after about a year and a half working that job, I just decided I was more interested in sort of the inner workings of the computer. And I should go working for some, you know, major computer company. Uh, the computers that I was working with happened to be built by Digital Equipment Corporation, which is based in Massachusetts. And lo and behold, just as I was thinking, this deck was doing interviews right in my building, in the lobby of my building. So I went and did an interview. This guy went over my resume, went over the you know my background and everything. He said, you know, I think you should come and interview. And uh, he mm -hmm. says, I'm sure we can find a job for you. And I was like, okay. So I went to Massachusetts. I interviewed for a job in Maynard, Massachusetts, oh, and yeah. a job in uh, Marlboro, Massachusetts. And uh, I got a job that paid astonishingly more than I could ever imagine getting paid for doing anything, especially when I didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But I took the job. First time I've ever left Chicago for any length of time. I'm living in this like entirely different part of the, the world. And, uh, uh, at some point, a couple of my coworkers said, hey, why don't you come folk dancing with us? And like a lot of people, you know, who you know, discover this for the first time in their 20s, my reaction was, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Say what? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Pardon? Why would I want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> but here I was. I didn't know anybody. I had no idea how to meet people. I didn't know, like, I had, I had absolutely no social skills whatsoever outside of my job, right? So I went, uh, oh, and one of the guys was actually my housemate. I had, we uh, got a house in, um, we rented a house in uh, Maynard, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of them was my housemate, Dave, kind of a little bit of foreshadowing there. And uh, Barb, my other coworker, and we went down to Framingham, Massachusetts on Wednesday night and went folk dancing. Mm. And I was completely blown away. My just, I mean, almost literally my head exploded. We, one of the dances we did, there's a, there's a Hungarian couple dance called Seke Frisch. And it's a couple dance, uh, just a couple of things. And it's done to this 
you know, Hungarian sort of folk recording, very scratchy on its on an old 78. And at some point while I'm dancing this dance, it hit me. It's like, you know, we studied Bartok. We talked about how he ran around Hungary and Romania with his little wire recorder recording all these folk bands. And not only is this the first time I've ever heard anything like that, I'm dancing to it. Mm-hmm. I just, the whole way home from that dance, I just was like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> and then, uh, and here I am. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, for our listeners who may not know, Maynard, Massachusetts is one of the towns to the west of Boston proper. It's very close to Concord. It's only like a couple towns west of Concord where the Scout House is, and there's a lot of dancing out there. Contra, squares, international folk dance, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I got plopped down in the middle of all of it. And and I was so into dancing. So that was uh, my first dance uh, was at the Framingham International Folk Dancers, and that would have been... Sometime early 1979. This is the first time I've come across mm-hmm. this, the beginnings of this whole scene. Which, by the way, uh, it was at that dance that I got to watch Dan Pearl call his first contra dance to the Yankee Ingenuity recording Kitchen Junket. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting that, like, because when I started dancing, I danced a damn pearl calling. It seemed like you'd been calling a long time. It's fascinating that the Yankee Ingenuity recording already existed before Dan was starting to call. Right? That's crazy. Right? In 79. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Some, crazy. 79 or 80, someplace in there. Anyway, uh, so uh, I got so enamored of dancing. And certainly in that era, I, I very quickly got up to the point where I was literally dancing and I'm not exaggerating. I was dancing eight times a week at one point. Yeah. <laughs> People who know me now are like, you danced? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I danced a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Monday night was Scottish. Tuesday night uh, was a contra dance at the uh, at the Bremer May School. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wednesday night was what was Wednesday night? Um, English. Uh, English and well, I didn't do any more uh, initially. Uh, Thursday was Todd Whittemore's contra dance in uh, Watertown, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Friday night uh, was the international folk dance, uh, and Thursday I would either go to the advanced international folk dance or Todd's dance, depending upon how I felt that week. Mm-hmm. So let's see, that's uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturday there was a contra dance almost always. Uh, and then Sunday was the MIT International Folk Dance or and or uh, I joined the Scottish demo team and we had our practice on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. And at one point I joined the Pinewoods Morris men and was in a Morris team uh, on Sunday afternoon. So literally eight times a week. <laughs> yeah. So this is your life. You're working full time doing computer work and then you're dancing sounds like every moment that you weren't working basically you were dancing yeah and now how did i do that i know right <laughs> i can't imagine doing that now <laughs> anyway and believe it or not i left a lot out but that's those are the that's the story basically broad broad brush strokes yes kind of i didn't even talk about how i actually started playing for folk dancing but you know that's how i got started with all of this in general so well, how did you get started playing for folk dancing? Well, uh, at the International 
folk dance in Framingham. Uh, Nancy Reed and Lee, can't remember her last name. They were the two women who ran that dance. And Nancy took a shine to me and she started making these little hints. It's like, have you noticed how much clarinet there is in all this Eastern European music? It's like, yeah, so? It's like, have you ever thought of playing it? No. <laughs> Why would I do that? Um, and she ended up, I, and I don't remember the details of this anymore, but uh, I actually was a little resentful uh, of her for a little while after this. She engineered the environment around me. So I actually did pull my clarinet out. We, and a bunch of us got together and just started playing these tunes. And I had a lot of baggage to get over. Um, and still do, as a matter of fact. But uh, it, all the experience from music school, you know, came flooding back. And I was just, it was like, mm. it just like brought up all the frustrations and tension and stress and just anger at my old teachers and stuff. But I got past it. Uh, and then I started getting into it. And uh, eventually that led, I started transcribing stuff. You know, I started listening to recordings and just transcribing madly. Mm. Um, and learning a lot in the process and just writing this music down and writing it down again when I could hear better and then writing it down a third time when I could hear even more. <laughs> yeah. And these are the days. So you guys have the, the, the amazing slowdowner now, and I'm so jealous because all we had back then was the, uh, Marantz, uh, tape recorder that had a, uh, an adjustment dial where you could adjust the pitch and it had a little switch so you could play at half speed. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to these Bulgarian tunes going, and, you know, trying to, you know, figure out what they're doing and transcribing it. And sometimes with Romanian music, which is just was so insane, I would actually record it being played at half speed and then take that down a half, uh, an, another octave. Wow, so I got it down, a, you know, like uh, two octave, whatever, you know, a quarter speed of, of what was going on. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so I'm writing all this stuff down and learning these tunes. And then uh, I, I Marianne Taylor and I had become really, really good friends. And uh, uh, we cooked up this scheme where I would play for one of the dances on, I think it was Thursday night. might have been Friday night. I don't remember. But I do remember the very first time I played for dancing ever in my life. Marianne was at the piano. I was playing clarinet. We were in the corner of the room and everybody was dancing to Altikoff, the Zwiefacher. And that was uh, my absolute first time ever playing for dancing. And then there was a, a group called the Cambridge Folk Orchestra, who I think are still around, actually. Um, but they were certainly the thing. They were doing live music for international folk dancing. Um, and so I joined them, met a bunch of musicians there, um, playing for dances. They had a monthly dance, I think it was, and we would play for international folk dances there. And then, uh, let's see, Susan Worland was uh, the fiddler in that band. I think she's the one who introduced me to Alan Byrne. He's this accordion player and piano player. And uh, he was, is, a genius. I mean, he's just like, he's one of those people, he walks in a room and everybody in the room just ignores everything else, but starts talking to him. You know, he's just one mm -hmm. of those people. 
And, uh, you know, and I'm like, hi, I'm here. <laughs> but we formed this band, uh, which we, you know, because we could never come up with a decent band name, we ended up calling ourselves the Boston Folk Ensemble. And uh, we were playing for the Pinewoods Weekends, the Folk Art Center's Pinewoods Weekends. Like the July 4th weekend? No, this or is the Labor Day? Folk Art Center had their own weekend uh, before Labor Day. Uh, and it was a I weekend see. at Pinewoods. And, and, I see. And again, I think that also is still happening. Um, and then uh, they also did... This is, so this will be a nice segue into how I got involved with contradance music. So 
I'm playing all this music and playing with Susan Worland and playing with uh, Alan Byrne and playing for dances on Thursday. Oh yeah. So now I'm not dancing eight times a week. Now I'm playing one of those nights, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least partly. Right. A uh, slippery slope. A slippery slope. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so the Falkland Center also had this thing called, uh, called Oktoberfest. And it was basically an international folk dance weekend. And one of the regular perform and we and we would have these jam sessions. It's just a bunch of people sitting around playing international folk dance tunes in this lovely cabin up in um, what was that town up in northern Ver- Stowe, Vermont? It was in Stowe, Vermont mm. at the time. It's gorgeous. I still have like lovely memories of just driving around up there in the in the freezing October and the colors and everything. It was just gorgeous. Uh, one of the regular dance leaders. Um, that the Taylors had at that weekend was Ralph Page, who at that point was recording, uh, uh, calling to recordings. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one year, uh, one time, Marianne said, wouldn't it be great if we could like put together a set of contra dance tunes and play for Ralph and just surprise him? And Susie and I were like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So we learned a tune or whatever. And Marianne, you know, sort of talked us through it. And Ralph was getting ready to call one of his dances. And we just walked out to the stage, you know, where we had already had some microphones and stuff set up because we were already doing live music for this at various points. And uh, and we just turned to Ralph and we just said, hey, Ralph, we're going to play for your country dates today. And he was like, whoa. So, uh, so we played the dance and he was just, he was so happy. He just thought it was the greatest thing that I'd ever done. And so that became a thing that we were doing. So now... So now I'm not only, uh, you know, playing, you know, fairly regularly for these uh, international folk dances. I'm starting to get into contra dance music. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, um, I have and I have all sorts of wonderful stories about playing for contra dances. So Andy Wolf and I think Kate Barnes uh, and Cal Howard, I think, were sort of like one, uh, one of the regular bands at Brewer Maine. Rumor May was the like, this is the open band. If you want to play, you sit in with these guys. They were the ringers. And there was never anybody more than, you know, if ever. And I showed up one day saying, hey, can I sit in? I hear this is a place where I can sit in. And I remember Andy Wolf, like, being very grumpy. It, really funny because Andy and I became good friends later. But this first time I met, he's like, well, you, know, you have to know the tunes. You don't have any music. And, you know, <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, I know, you know. So I take my clarinet case out and I start putting my clarinet together. His eyes get really big and he says, with that? <laughs> um, did that seem an apprehensive or an excited? No, it was face? apprehensive. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I wish our listeners could see the face that you just made, like <laughs> eyes wide. <laughs> it really, he, was, he just looked like, I can't believe this is happening to me. <laughs> So I did, and he apparently didn't hate me after that. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, as I say, eventually we, we actually even became friends and stuff. Uh, well, I guess the bar was pretty low, too, which is nice. He had very low expectations yeah, well, as a clarinet player. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, you know, it was like I was just still getting the hang of this. Uh, and uh, at some point I was even I was sitting in with Yankee Ingenuity. I was becoming a regular sit-in with Yankee Ingenuity on Monday nights. Because uh, they were doing the the Concord dance during the year, uh, and uh, and and for that I always had to sit as far back in the stage as possible, play as quietly as possible, 
because Donna would keep saying, I can still hear you. <laughs> this being Donna Hebert. Yes. <laughs> oh, Lord. Good old days. So uh, so I'm getting more and more recognition. Well, okay. So I'm getting more and more rec- recognition playing for contra dances. One, one time at Stowe, uh, and, and I, I know that some of the, I mean, this is like 40 years ago, right? So my brain is like conflating things and getting all the dates and stuff wrong. But I, I do remember one time, uh, Ralph, because I was, as I was playing more and more for contra dances, I, I, I'd already been getting a lot of criticism. Like, who does this guy think he is that he can play fiddle tunes on the clarinet? And, and that, uh, literally there was apparently a, I've never seen it but I heard a story about someone wrote a letter to one of the callers and it might've been Ted Sinella. It might've been David Kaner. I don't know who it was, but some, some caller, I, I remember telling me that they got this letter from some dancer saying exactly that. It's like, there's this guy who's trying to play contra dance music on the clarinet. Tell him to stop. <laughs> uh, so, and of course I didn't. Um, and actually the caller, whoever the caller was, I remember they actually were very encouraged. It's like, I just wanted you to know, it's like, you know, you're causing some controversy out there, but I think it's great. You know, so that was encouraging. So, so I'm getting all this feedback, like, you know, what is a clarinet player doing playing contra dance music? So at Stowe, Vermont, at Oktoberfest this one year, I was talking to Ralph Page, the dean of contra dancing. The legend, the guy who kept contradancing going through the 30s and 40s, inspired people like Dudley Laughman and blah, 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 right? Says to me, it's so great to see the clarinet coming back into this music. That's what I was going to say. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then and then uh, fast forward a bit. Uh, Susan and I were running our Greenfield dance. Uh, and so, like... At one point, we were running it twice a month. I think we we definitely were running it once a month by the end because we just felt like two twice a month was too much. Mm-hmm. But um, this being Susan Kevra, Susan Kevra, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I will never forget one time. This is pre lizards, but you know it was great for me. I mean, I loved running that dance because basically I hired whoever the hell I wanted, you know, that mm-hmm. I could play with them, you know. And uh, I remember someone coming up to to me after during the break. And they said, you know, I just can't imagine this music without a clarinet in it. And, mm. and I remember my reaction is like, score, I won. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about the role of the clarinet in contra dancing, obviously there used to be like big bands and horn sections and clarinets. We have this amazing ability to constantly redefine what we think our tradition is based on what it looks like in that moment. Oh, and we're going to talk. Any changes we're going to talk about that word tradition, honey. <laughs> Let me tell right? you, I've been listening to you talk about tradition on all these podcasts, and I have opinions. <laughs> I am so glad you have all these pent up opinions. Of- Someone finally wants to hear them. <laughs> so, um. You know, like, obviously, did you know, because you're probably learning about contra dancing as you're playing it, like some folks do, like, that's what I did when I started, is I had to learn about the tradition as I was learning how it worked. Did you have, like, did you buy into that whole clarinet stuff? Like, there's no clarinet? Or did you know that there was a tradition? Or who were your, like, idols or things that you listened to when you were learning to play? 
Oh man, idols. Uh, Pee Wee Russell, except he's a jazz clarinet player. But, <laughs> um, well, it's funny. I mean, and this gets, this actually does kind of get into the whole idea of tradition. Uh, I, I fought that whole battle, the whole, like more and more during the, well, my international folk dance music days. Um, because this came up all the time. I mean, we're playing this music from Bulgaria, right? We're playing this music from Norway and Sweden and whatever. And there was definitely this line of thought of, you can't change this music because you're not native. You know, so you have to do exactly what you're hearing on the recording, uh, which I didn't buy into that. Um, mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I remember once I was playing with the Mandala Orchestra one year which, by the way, is where I met Larry Unger, in fact. Mm. And one of the pieces we were doing was a Greek suite. Uh, and I was supposed to be playing the melody, the lead, on this Greek suite on the clarinet. Which is, uh, you know, the clarinet's a very, you know, popular instrument in Greece. Except for the kind of Greek music we were playing for this one dance. Uh, there's no clarinet in that music, so here I am playing clarinet. But... That, that was a nicety I didn't really know about at the time. All I knew was like, I'm playing Greek music, I'm playing clarinet, I have to do this right. And, and so one of the guys in the mandala band turned to me and said, you know, you're taking this way too seriously. It's just folk music. Uh-huh. And I don't buy that either. <laughs> so here's the extremes, right? And, right. and I'm getting criticism that I'm either being too loose with the music or I'm being too anal retentive about it, depending yeah. upon who's talking. And, you know, my attitude was that, you know, we're listening to these recordings. This is a snapshot someone took of some guy that everybody liked. Or maybe not. Maybe it was just some doofus, you know, who just happened to get in front of a recording yeah, and was he even having a good day? Like, it could have been a great musician right. on an average day. But I'm supposed to play day. every note exactly the way he played it? What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that seems goofy. And especially in Greek music, which is a really highly improvisational form of music. Mm. And I got to say, I mean, you know, having studied that music really intensively for a while, uh, the way they improvise just still blows my mind. The things that they mm -hmm. do and the way they... And it's just gorgeous. Um. So my feeling was, okay, figure out what the melody is, listen to the recording, kind of get some sense of what the embellishments are or the phrasing or how they think about the music and everything. What make you know, what we used to talk about was what makes this music swing? You know, mm -hmm. there's a way that Bulgarian music swings. There's a way that Greek mm -hmm. music swings. It's not the same swing at all, obviously, but there's a, there's a way that, you know, the authenticity, uh, authenticity of the tradition is that feel, that the way that music swings. But it's constantly evolving. It's always been evolving. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, every once in a while, Dick Pleasance was a radio host on um, the local uh, PBS station uh, in Boston. And I would come in with my arm full of recordings and we would talk about international folk dance music. And I'd like have some kind of an idea or a theme that I would want to talk about. And one um, session we did I was talking about Middle Eastern music. And um, one of the things that I said uh, 
And, and this is like, uh, this is after years of like really thinking through this and having arguments with people, always having arguments, God. Um, but I, I really was firming up my attitude about what, I, what, what tradition means to me based on various conversations with a lot of different people. And so I walk into this studio with Dick Pleasance and uh, I'm playing these recordings. Some of them are Egyptian, some of them are Arabic, some of them are Turkish, some of them are, you know, I don't even, uh, I can't remember all the ones they were, but it's all these cultures in the Middle East who are often like trying to kill each other, you know, politically, mm -hmm. right? But if you listen to the music, you can hear how there's this kind of sensibility about all that music that they all share. And I, you know, and you know this, it's like we're musicians, we hang out, right? And right. whatever, you know, our, you know, dear leader is doing, we're playing music saying, <clears throat> we're playing music saying, hey, do you know this tune? <laughs> right? And so, or they teach each other tunes, right? And they learn a little bit from each other in terms of like tunes, how they're played. They affect each other in all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of ways. And now, all I was saying was musicians really aren't, paying a whole lot of attention to the political scene and worrying about that so much. They're just like hanging out jamming, you know? Yeah. Let's, let's have some slew of it and, you know, play some tunes. You know, I don't care if you're Turkish or Israeli or whatever. Right. But I just imagine, you know, it's like the way musicians relate to each other now. It's the way it's always been, you know, like why would I think it's different anywhere else? Um, Susan Worland used to go to these uh, international festivals and there'd be musicians from all over the world. And they all just would, they get together and play tunes, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, totally, completely like unrelated traditions, but they would play with each other. Right. So the tradition is, you know, musicians who are playing it They're The tradition is whatever they're doing now, basically, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And I, I will leave you with one other story. Um, uh, and of course, you always face out when, when, when the time is critical, right? Andor Zampo. He was a regular uh, teacher of Hungarian dances at those, uh, uh, at those Stowe weekends, at the Oktoberfest weekends that the Folk Art Center was running. And I was talking to him. He, he uh, left Hungary because of the uh, 1956 revolution. Uh, he basically was one of those people who, if he stayed in Hungary, he would have been shot or something. So he came to America and was like, well, what can I do? And it's like, he, the tailors, you know, caught up with him and said, hey, teach some folk dance. So he's, uh, he was like this uh, premier Hungarian folk dance teacher that, that they hired every year for the Oktoberfest. And I was talking to him and he said one of the things that he was doing in Hungary, uh, he was in... Uh, uh, you know, an academic, and he was a dance leader, and uh, this is like his thing, you know, mm -hmm. collecting dances from the, the Hungarian countryside and stuff. And there were some old dances that they were kind of afraid were going to go away, so they wanted to get recordings of these old guys doing these dances, right? So they hired a hall, they provided plenty of booze, they got these old guys to show up, and they had a band playing, and, uh, and then they sat around talking to these guys who showed absolutely no interest in doing any dancing whatsoever. Hmm. And Ander is kind of like, you know, we're kind of, the whole point is just to get these videotapes of these guys dancing and this is looking like it's not going to happen. So uh, 
he tries to encourage the guy he's talking to. And he says, hey, why don't you show me some, some of the steps from those dances that, that you used to do when, when you were younger? And the guy kind of like sighs and gets up and goes, okay. And he kind of lackadaisically does a few steps here and there. And then he walks up to the band. You're going to love this. He walks up to the band and he says, you get your father. He knows how to play for me. He just wasn't inspired by the music at all. These young whippersnappers were playing it all wrong. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Hungarian music in a small town, one generation removed. It's already moved on. Yeah. It's not what he wants to dance to. Right. Didn't inspire him at all. So now when you ask me about like, or you're asking people about, so, you know, what's the tradition? It's like, we're making it right now. Tradition is a living thing. If you want to talk about snapshots, we can talk about snapshots of that tradition. But right. Uh, okay, I'm getting I'm getting too excited. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 but I really I really believe that it's like as long as people want this is this is one of Dick Crumb's things. Uh, as long as people want to dance to beautiful music, people will dance to beautiful music and will figure out a way. I mean, on some level, I feel like this is my own fake lore, right? Um, That the whole New England tradition was a bunch of people who came here from other countries playing different music from different parts of England, France, whatever, wherever they were coming from, and said, let's have a dance. And so that's why I think of it as a kind of a mongrel dance form. It was just from the get-go, it was just a bunch of people figuring out how to dance to beautiful music. Mm-hmm. They used the dances that they knew. They used the music that they knew. I mean, how many of the contra dances that we that we used to the, the chestnuts we used to call them are are almost direct descendants of Scottish dances? Chorus jig, you know. Uh, what's another one? Uh, is it chorus jig? I can't. You know, I can't remember. Money Musk. Stuff. Money Musk probably. But I've done some of those dances at Scottish dances. And it's like, oh, this is whatever contra dance that we've always been doing. Completely like, different must being like a modified version of a Scottish tune. You know. <laughs> yeah, Very modified version. Yeah, who knows? And I don't know specifically about Money Musk. Like I say, I've, I've forgotten a lot of, you know, stuff drips out of my ear. I can't remember stuff over after 40 years. But I do remember dancing at Scottish dances, at the RCDS dances on uh, Monday nights. And they would do a dance that was just, it was exactly the same as a contra dance mm-hmm. that, you know, we were doing a lot at that point. So which one is correct? Right. <laughs> to me, the thought of a tradition and I'm not an ethnomusicologist. And so my opinions on this are worth zero. Exactly. Yes, me too. Thank you. Join but the <laughs> when I, when I think about to, to me, what we, this tradition is what it means to me is that it has roots of some sort. Like it's not a new thing we just made up. People have been doing it for a long time and it involves some kind of community, which is also what makes it a tradition instead of just an activity. Right. Within those things, what the nature of the activity is can change and the people change is if it, if a tradition is part of a culture, then as the culture changes, the tradition also changes. And well, it can change yeah. in lots of different directions at once, right? Like there's a million different ways to contra dance now. 
because of all this diversity. There's modern choreography and simple, more classic choreography. And there's some people who like it the way it was done in Nelson, New Hampshire, and other people <laughs> like it the way it's done in California from the Dudley Dancers. And, you know, there's all these different ways to do it. And I love that right now they're all similar enough that they're still under one umbrella. We can call them all contra dancing still. Well, they, have the same, they all have the same roots, right? They yeah. all kind of come from the same funnel. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, to say that this is, val- you know, it's like, and I've come across it's like, well, my way is right. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, sorry. Your way is just your way. And it, that came out of, and, and it's true. I mean, I actually spent, I will admit, I spent a lot of um, uh, the 80s and 90s kind of angry about what I saw happening with contra dancing. Hmm. Um, because when I started, uh, oh, oh, and speaking of, I'm going to give a plug to the new podcast for callers. Um, yeah. I heard about it and I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to listen to this. But the first person she was interviewing was Phil Jameson. And this is, by the way, from the mic with Mary Wesley, also sponsored by CDSS. Plug, plug, plug. But uh, but the interview with Phil was just brilliant, and Phil actually is an, an academic who has studied the history of all this stuff, and he knows things that you can I you and I can only guess at. And uh-huh. listening, I highly recommend that interview because it, it's just he says some things that just blew my brain away. Um, but he actually came up with, because uh, he was talking about the changes that I saw happening at around the same time. Uh, and in fact, one of those articles on my Mosaic website uh, is uh, the original Dare to be Square uh, essay that he wrote in 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says it was 1988, but I have 1987. I'm sticking to it. But uh, I, I was totally enamored of that essay because it just felt like he was saying all the things that I felt like I saw going on in contra dancing at that time myself. Uh, and I know a lot of new England contra dance musicians really were pissed off at him about that, which I have to admit I took a certain glee in. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, so can you fill us in a little bit about well, the substance of that? Well, what he, what the, the, the main point for our discussion here that uh, I, I was getting to is um he talked about community dances turning into dance communities, which Mm -hmm. I thought was a brilliant way to to factor it in. And it was like, you know, it was a community that had dances when I started, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like, there was a group of people who were part of, you know, whatever, I mean, however loosely community was already being kind of wiped right. out in the early 80s. It's still, there was a sense of like, this is a group of people. One of the things we do is dance, you know? And then sometime in the mid 80s, I feel like it switched over into dance communities where it was like, we started talking about how to create good dancers. We started talking about technique. We started talking about, uh, I heard people, and this drove me nuts. People would talk about doing their social duty by dancing with new dancers. It's like, when did this become a social duty? <sighs> you know, uh, it's a community dance, right? Maybe not. 
I mean, it is nice to dance with new dancers if you want your dance to continue. Someone should dance with them and enjoy it. But if you don't enjoy it, don't dance with them because then they'll have a bad time. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, So, yeah. So that's that's kind of, you know, my thing about tradition is kind of like there are snapshots. And there's the living, breathing tradition of which we are a part. Mm hmm. And uh, I, I choose the latter, uh, not the mm-hmm. snapshots. Uh, Kate Barnes actually, and I don't remember if she mentioned this in your in your interview, but uh, we call it the uh, the Barnes theorem of inverse uh, stiffness to a tradition. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's like the people who are playing Irish mu- music in New York City are very serious about how it should be played. Meanwhile, the Irish are kind of like, let's play this tune. <laughs> and not worrying about whether it fits the tradition or not. Oh, and another conversation I just remembered. Um, I was talking, I had become good friends with um, uh, uh, Scottish fiddler. Um, uh, he runs the, the, the Scottish camps in California at Mendocino. Oh, uh, and I hate that I'm spacing on his name. Um, well, hopefully it'll come to me. Anyway, he grew up yeah, in Scotland. And if Scot- you don't remember it, for our listeners, we will put it in the yes. podcast notes. Hopefully it will show up at some point. Um, but he grew up in Scotland. He grew up in a small village in Scotland. He was a Scottish fiddler. He was the real deal. He was traditional. And he told me that he used to get criticism from the people around him because he went to like the next county over or something and was playing all this music. And so the purity of his tradition was being polluted by going over and playing with these other people who played differently. So he wasn't really traditional. It's like, what do you do with that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So I'm curious to, to go back to what that meant for you in your world when you were learning to play for contra dances. Um, You know, like some people could say that you sort of brought the clarinet into the mainstream of contra dance. It just, or it just so happened that no one else was playing it at the time that you entered the contra dance scene, but then you did sort of also make it popular or acceptable again, maybe through persistence in addition to sheer talent. (laughs) Well, I, I will definitely admit to stubbornness. Uh, yeah, talent is a, an iffy term, but uh, it's not like I was the only clarinet player. I think it, mm-hmm. it's just there was a certain crowd, you know, mm-hmm. that you know just thought it was anathema. Uh, there was a guy, Rich Blase, up in um, Brattleboro, in fact, mm-hmm. who played clarinet for for contra dances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, I remember at the time when I was living in the Boston area, I think it was like living in Somerville or Arlington at the time, and uh, Becky Ashenden was one of the you know famous people out in the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. And she kept trying to get me to, you know, find a way to get me to come out and play for dances in Pioneer Valley. And if my recollection is correct, uh, this is a quote from Nick Hawes, who, again, I later became friends with him. So it's all very hilarious in, in the long run. But I believe it was Nick Hawes who said, we don't like clarinets here. So I was like, that's it. I'm not going to end up, I'm never going to play in Pioneer Valley, which of course turned out to be completely inaccurate. And also, uh, I believe uh, 
in, uh, were they in Philadelphia? Uh, Hold the Mustard was a band that was playing. Barbara Greenberg and Bob Pascarella Mm -hmm. and Dan Bierbaum, who was the clarinet player. Mm -hmm. And I remember Mm -hmm. they came and played Todd's Dance one time. It was like, wow, a clarinet player at Todd's Dance. Yay. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So I certainly wasn't the only one. Um, But I think living in New England, where we did New England contra dance and played New England music, whatever the hell that is, um, I just kept showing up everywhere. I was at the Neffa Orchestra. I was playing at the Neffa Orchestra a bunch. And after a few years, at one point, we had like three or four clarinet players playing at the Neffa Orchestra. And and that was fun. Um, So I, I can't take full credit uh, for like bringing the clarinet back because it was kind of there, mm-hmm, but exactly. maybe I did something to make it acceptable or more <laughs> acceptable. Yeah. Loud of the partners and a corner two. Uh, your corner dosey do. Join hands, circle left around the ring you go. All the way around that ring until you're home again uh, And when you're there, swing your own You swing them round and round Now Alaman left your corner Right and left grand Now meet your honey You take her by the hand You promenade her home Just you and me Take a little walk, go home Swing your honeybee To the Alabama Jubilee those four ladies promenade the inside of that ring back to your partner you swing and you swing and now do see do round the corner girl come home and bow to your partner you swing and swing and whirl four men now promenade the inside of that hall Go back to partner and do the do see do swing the corner lady and promenade Take a little walk, cause it's 90 in the shade at the Alabama Jubilee. And now those four ladies promenade the inside of that ring. Go back, partner, you swing and you swing. Do see do round the corner, girl, come home and bow to your partner. You swing, swing and whirl, and now four men you promenade the inside of that hall. Go back to partner and do the do see do Swing the corner lady and promenade You take a little walk cause it's 90 in the shade At the Alabama Jubilee And now you bow to your partner While Alaman left your corner Turn partner by the right Go all the way around to that right hand lady With the left hand around Come back and swing, swing your partner you swing her up and down now Alaman left and do the right and left grand Go round the big and you take her by the hand Promenade her home, just you and me You take a little walk and now swing your honeybee At the Alabama Jubilee And now those four ladies promenade the inside of that ring Go back to partner, you swing and you swing Do-si-do, round the corner, girl, come home and bow to your 
park here. You swing and swing and whirl, and now those men, you promenade the inside of that hall. Go back to partner and do the do si do. Swing the corner, lady, and promenade. You take a little walk, cause it's Those four ladies promenade the inside of that ring. Go back to partner, you swing and you swing. Go see do round the corner, girl. Come home and bow to your partner. You swing and swing and swing and whirl. Four men now promenade the inside of that hall. Go back to partner and do the do see do. Partner, Alaman left your corner. Turn partner by the right. Go all the way round to that right hand lady. Wheel the left hand around. Come home, swing, swing your partner. You swing her up and down. Now Alaman left and do the right and left hand. Now meet your honey. Take her by the hand. You promenade her home. Just you and me. You take a little walk. Go home, swing your honey. Keep on swinging at the Alabama Jubilee. All righty. So in the beginning, when you were starting out, um, what kind of tunes were you playing? What did you learn first? How did you approach learning all these tunes on the clarinet? Do you uh, do you have a copy of Randy's uh, New England Fiddler's Repertoire? I sure do. Everybody should. Those tunes. <laughs> a yeah. lot of those tunes. Um, I mean, the New England Fiddler's Repertoire, it's like one of the Bibles of New England contra dance tunes. Randy Miller. Yeah, of course, right? That's yeah. and, and the Portland collections were just not even a fantasy in anyone's mind yet. Right. Uh, at that point. Um, oh, and uh, still kind of harping on this tradition thing. Part of what happened to me was it was at Nefa. I met an old friend of mine from who was, I was in college with. And it turns out she was into, you know, all kinds of, you know, dancing and folk dancing and stuff. And we were talking about this thing of like playing music from other countries and playing music from other cultures. And she made the point as someone had made it to her, I think, uh, at some point in her life, you know, there's all this music all around you. Why aren't you playing that? Mm. And it, she she plunked that into my brain right at the same time. I was just, the way I put it at the time was, I'm really tired of arguing about how to play this music. Is it traditional enough? Am I taking too many liberties? Do I really know what I'm doing? Is this correct? Is this wrong? I don't care. Hey, maybe if I play for contra dances in my backyard... Because I'm in New England and I'm playing for contra dances with contra dance musicians, it, it won't be an issue. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, you know, clarinet doesn't belong in contra dances at this point, right? So, <laughs> uh, so it, that's really the inception of it. And so, when I started doing it, well, there's no clarinet tradition, right? I mean, look at Irish music. Is there a clarinet tradition there? No. 
what about Scottish music? No. Uh, New England, I didn't know of one. I, or, or if there was one, I didn't know what that would be, really, or where I would get recordings of it. Cause, you know. mm-hmm. So, yeah, I kind of made it up all on my own. I just kind of listened to what the fiddlers were doing. I uh, decided my breath was their bow. And I could do some of the embellishments and stuff like that. Uh, so I just, I spent years basically trying to sound like a fiddle. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, turns out that's kind of not a great idea in the long run, hmm. <laughs> but it was all I knew how to do. It's like, I'm playing with these fiddlers. I'm listening to what they're doing and I'm just trying to do what they're doing. Right. Uh, but I think, I think I really, when I finally relaxed and realized, Oh, I'm a clarinet player. I'm not a fiddler. <laughs> uh, maybe I should try sounding like a clarinet, you know? Um, but you know, it's like taking little bits and pieces of ideas from here and there. It's like, embellishments from Irish music and, you know, Scottish music. And I mean, I played for Scottish country dancing for a long time too. And uh, one of my favorite memories from that was playing uh, at Pinewoods at Scottish week. And it was the Scots just, they cannot have enough fiddles. It's like fill the stage with fiddles. We, we don't have enough fiddles. We need a bigger stage, you know, or maybe we can have them go off on the sides. You know, it's like giant fiddle orchestras. And Alistair Frazier, that's the Scottish player I was thinking of. Oh, of so, course I would have known that. So right. Alistair, Alistair Frazier and this woman, um, Arlene Leach, uh, was also like a really well-known Scottish fiddler at that point. And I remember being in the middle of this giant clot of fiddlers playing this for some Scottish dancing uh, at C-Sharp at uh, Pinewoods. And Arlene was standing next to me and she just kept cracking up. And... I finally said, what, what's so funny? And she said, you know, you play beautifully. It sounds really, really great. But it's kind of like, you know, talking to an Indian man. And when he speaks, he's speaking in a perfect Scottish accent. <laughs> I was like, I think that's a compliment, right? <laughs> um, but it was because, you know, but I was trying to sound like the fiddles. I was trying to do what the fiddles were doing. Uh, so when I played Scottish music with, you know, in the Scottish context, I pulled out my, you know, sturdiest Scottish stylings that I, you know, had figured out how to do on the clarinet. Uh, and then the same thing with, uh, uh, you know, practically everything else I played, you know, I'd, I'd listen to someone playing Irish music and I just like all those rolls and trolls and stuff like that. And I just kind of figure out ways Mm -hmm. to do that on the clarinet. Um, one of the things that I surmised when I was doing international folk dance music, I played bagpipe for a while. I played uh, the Bulgarian bagpipe for a while. And what I, what I noticed was what's happening on the bagpipe in Bulgaria is what the clarinet players were doing in Bulgaria. It's like the ornamentation, everything was directly drawn from the bagpipe playing. Yeah. And, and, and Betsy Branch and I have talked about this too, that you see that in Irish and Scottish music too. It's like a lot of what the fiddles are doing, you can see the line going right back to the bagpipes in those, Absolutely. In those areas. Um, so, you know, the bagpipe helped uh, just listening a lot and trying to imitate the, the fiddle as much as I could. Uh, I sort of basically did created my own style. So yeah, that's the other thing too. It's like one of the things that uh, you I've heard you talk about a bunch is like the mixing of styles, right? Um, you don't mix Irish with French Canadian. And my feeling is like, hey, if the tunes go together, why not? I don't care. <laughs> Do they work together? Then let's do it. Um, Carrie, and as has been said before, Carrie Elkin was famous for 
never, never mixing the streams, you know. Um, and I, I've done gigs with him uh, where, you know, it's like, you know, we can't do that tune because it's a different style from the other tune. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we'll find something else. But, but yeah, so I, I pretty much invented it. And then by the time I let go of trying to sound like a fiddle, then all of a sudden this whole new world opened up. And, and now I, mm. I play the crap I play now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where you could kind of play in your own style, whatever. Whatever. whatever is. Yeah. I mean, it's just like I just gave up working so hard at it and just decided this is the way I play. And as long as people keep hiring me to play for their dances, then I'm happy as a clam. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could think about just like some logistical things about like matching ornaments is nice if you want to have a good unison melody, but then there's also groove and unison melody is a groove in and of itself, but it is not the only way to have a good groove Absolutely, when you're playing with people. Yeah. And so I feel like matching your bandmates is important either to get a good groove or to get a good melody lock, but there's lots of different ways to do it. So if you're not matching their ornaments exactly, what is your musical role in that in that case? Well, there's there's a term that I fell in love with at one point that justified the way I play contra dance music. So of course I love the term. Uh, you know, uh, there's homophony, which is what you're talking about. Everybody plays exactly mm-hmm. the same thing all together. Mm-hmm. Polyphony, which is you know written out different parts or whatever, you know, completely different parts. And then there's this lovely thing called heterophony. <laughs> that's great and it's basically yeah they're kind of the same but not really mm-hmm. <laughs> um and in fact in some of the arrangements that um like like when uh we, blt was doing a whole bunch of uh vintage music for a while through the 80s and we worked from a lot of arrangements uh, of that mm-hmm. music was just like we played what was on the page and pretty much that's right. it and what you see happening in some of the arrangements is like the violin and the clarinet are playing in unison and then there's a little breakout and then they come back together again. Mm-hmm. And it's a really cool effect. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't have to be playing the same thing all the time straight through. It's like you find something to complement the melody that kind of follows the melody to some extent. Mm-hmm. So is that what you would do these days in a contra dance is kind of play the melody for a bit, play around the melody under it? Like, what would you do? Yeah, that. <laughs> All those things. I, I, uh, I, I have this thing about once I get on stage, I stop thinking. Uh, uh-huh. You know, it's like I've been practicing. I've been playing for I've been playing for dances now for what? What is that? 40 years? 1979, 1980? Yeah. So that's 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. Again, I don't really fuss with what I do or how I do it anymore. It's kind of like I'm doing what I do. I, you know, learn some new tunes. And then uh, uh, there, there was someone, uh, this guy in Massachusetts, uh, um, Rich, he was an architect. Uh, we were we were in a jam session once. I think it was probably David Kaner's house. And uh, someone said, hey, how about if we play uh, Real de Beatrice? It's this French-Canadian minor tune. Um, and I had learned it in some way that I learned it. And I remember Rich saying, okay, that's the billified version. (laughs) 
So someone else ended up teaching the tune or whatever. <laughs> you folk process it. You build process. I am. I am totally a like humongous folk processor. You know, nothing. Nothing escapes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of things that fit differently on a clarinet and then there's also you filtering it through your own personality and not caring as much and being more free in your playing and all those things combined and you get the bill folk process <laughs> more or less yeah well and and the thing is you're and, and you you identify a real problem I mean, all those years i was trying to like be the fiddle it's kind of like mm -hmm. yeah it's a clarinet dude you don't have a bow you can't do double stops yeah. hello uh yeah. and 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 even just fingerings. I mean, especially these tunes in A. Mm. A is a, there are certain tunes that are just a nightmare on the clarinet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you kind of have to change the melody a little bit just so you can reach the note. You know, mm. there's just certain notes that will not work. So uh, I'll veer off from it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And thus, heterophony. <laughs> thus, heterophony. <laughs> And so I imagine this is a little bit different than like a, what people would think of as a solo. Like in the jazz tradition, you've got like the changes and the head and the tune, and then there's solos. But here you might take a solo sometimes, but also it's like playing around while the tune is happening. So it's not like a solo in the same sense. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's not a solo at all. It's uh, yeah. D David Kaner once said as much. He said, you know, what I can bring to the music is some color. You know, so, mm. you know, that's one of the things that the clarinet can function as is just a coloration that, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly the melody doesn't eat, you know, could be just some kind of made up harmony or whatever. Uh, but it adds a different color. And actually, that's why BLT was kind of a foundational uh, band for me, because it really settled for me that fiddle, clarinet, piano, that's the ideal mm. band for me, you know, because you get and this being. Barnes, Lee, Tomchak, yes, right? Yes. Kate Barnes, Mary Lee, and yourself. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, no. It's like, does anybody even remember that that band existed at this point? Right? <laughs> um, so anyway, you were saying you started playing with BLT, and I totally interrupted you. Oh, no. Was, I, I should be interrupted. I talk too much. <laughs> well, BLT, uh, part of the, the pivot point that BLT was... And I remember exactly when BLT started playing. It was 1982, the fall of 1982. And this was around when I was getting fed up with international folk dancing and uh, folk dance music and arguing about how to play it. And I was thinking I should really get into playing, you know, contra dance music. And I'd, you know, been, like I said, sitting in with Yankee Ingenuity here and there. and Or maybe I started sitting in with Yankee Ingenuity after getting together with uh, Mary and Kate. Um but uh, yeah, I, I was desperately looking to get into contra dance music. And I, I don't know if this is okay for publication, but I'm going to say it anyway. They were looking to get out of contra dance music and do something more interesting because they were mm -hmm. born with contra dance music. Mm -hmm. So it was a match made in heaven. And again, it was uh, Marianne Taylor. She put together what she was calling town hall dances. And what these were, uh, were mostly couple dances of some sort or another. So we do some international couple dance type thing, and then we do a contra dance or two, and then we do some more couple dances and everything. So Mary and Kate were the ringers for the contra dance stuff, and I was the ringer for the international stuff. Mm. And so it was like, you know, we were both kind of, you know, moving in opposite directions that way. Or <laughs> as Ruthie Dornfeld once said to me, 
why do you want to play contra dance music? You're already doing the interesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we started doing those dances and it was in the fall of 1982 that I, that, oh, and the way the band got its name was they put the flyer together and it was Barnes at the top, Lee at the, on the second line, Tom Chak on the third line, B-L-T, right? Mm-hmm. And we're like, hey, look, that's a band name. <laughs> and since, as you probably know, naming a band is one of the hardest things to do. No one argued. Absolutely. No one argued at no. all. No. Is it vaguely viable and not offensive? <laughs> Great. It's a name. Exactly. <laughs> is it not already taken by everybody right. else? Then <laughs> do you not actively hate it? Then it's a name. <laughs> Every once in a while, we, we'd be doing some kind of a one-off or something. Uh, or, you know, just like some weird off gig here, here or there. And Kate liked to use the name. Uh, I don't know if we have ever actually announced it or used this as a name, but Kate always fell in love with the name, the Wayne Balducci Five. <laughs> and it, it could be anything but a quintet. <laughs> uh-huh, right, of course. It has to be the wrong number of people. Well, you know, they have those like neural nets that create like their versions of what humans would write. Like, you know, you oh. feed a bunch of mystery novels in, it creates a mystery novel. What if we fed in all the names of all the actual contrabands over the last like hundred years and it could make up fake ones and they'd be just as bad. I would bet you couldn't tell the difference between contraband names made up by a computer and made up by a human. Uh, you know, it's entirely possible, especially it's just a name. I mean, I, I dread the idea of reading a novel written by computer, but a, a band name? Sure. <laughs> this is so off topic, but there was Harry Potter written by a computer, and it is some of the most hilarious <laughs> stuff I've ever read. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> it's very funny. So, you know... It's interesting because you play for a lot of different styles of dance. And as we know, you've danced a lot of these styles of dance. You know, I love consciousness music. Obviously, so do you. That's why we're here. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't always have maybe some of the nuance that or a variety of forms, like mostly time signatures and tempos. Like, you know, other kinds of dance, international dance or English country dance especially have varieties in like time signatures, key signatures, how fast you're going, the mood. Um, but yet, country dancing also has this amazing zestiness. And so how is your um, playing different when you're playing for conchas? Like what did that bring out in your playing when you started playing for conchas versus international dance? Um, that's a good question. What do I do differently? How do I play differently for contra dance than other things? I think the, the, the first word that came to mind probably is the best uh, description, wild abandon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's contra dance music for me uh, provides a structure. I'm, I'm one of those people, I, I early on, um, before I even knew about contra dancing, I had figured out that I'm not a purely creative person, but give me a bit of structure and I can do all kinds of stuff inside that structure. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the, this, the rigid structure of contra dance tunes is brilliant for me you know it's like okay we got we got chord changes we got a melody that i can ignore uh it's always 32 bars or mostly it's it's 32 bars so you know i got that clock in my head and so within that within those constraints let's see what happens and that's really kind of where the lizards 
for me came from. I had my fantasy at that point in my career was uh, the tradition of the New Orleans group improvisation, uh, where, you know, it's like there's, there's these specific instruments, they have specific roles, you know, clarinet, banjo, trumpet, uh, trombone, probably bass or tuba. And everybody, you know, it's like there was a chart, you know, chords, melody, uh, and each instrument sort of had a specific role to play within that context. You know, so the clarinet had sort of like a defined, and, they, and it was all improvised, but the clarinet sort of like uh, fell into this particular niche and the trumpet generally had the melody um, or not, you know, would, would, you know, but would be like the lead. Uh, and the clarinet and the trumpet would just work off of each other. And so that was, that was my idea. And so along comes Dave and Kate, uh, and uh, I think Dave mentioned this in his interview about, you know, he started showing up at the Greenfield dances. And there's this one particular moment that just blew my mind, blew both our, our minds. He was like standing right next to me. We were playing some tune. I don't remember what it was. And Dave and I just improvised some kind of improvised line. It wasn't the melody. It wasn't anything else. It was just some, I don't know, arpeggio or just a scale or something like that. And we did it in perfect harmony, absolutely together. And after we did that, we looked at each other and was like, what was that? <laughs> I want to do more of that. <laughs> it could just happen to spontaneously happen. And, you know, and it's funny because people, you know, now will like hear us playing. It's like, oh, well, you guys have been playing so long together. You don't, you don't need to have arrangements and you know exactly what each other is going to do. It's like, no, that was right from the get go. You know, we were, we were a group improv improvising band right from the get go. And uh, we've, I think we've gotten better at it maybe. Um, mm -hmm. But no, the, the ability to just between three people and, uh, and, you know, sometimes a base to sort of just fill the space with our own little niche. Mm -hmm. You know, I had my role as a clarinet. Dave had his role as the fiddle and we'd swap back and forth as to what that role was. And we kind of, you know, it's like, you know, nowadays the way I talk about it is like, there's a point when I just stop playing. And, and, and cause usually what's going on in my head is, I've been hearing too much of me. It's time to quit. <laughs> and then let them kind of do something for a while. And then I'll come back in and Dave will be like, oh, I need a break. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know? Uh, and then we'll do trades or what. But it's all completely spontaneous. And it's like, it's a sense, I think we all have. And this is another interesting thing um, that I wonder about sometimes. We're, all three of us grew up musically for contra dance music in the same culture in the same community. Uh, I remember these massive jam sessions at someone's house. It would be like, you know, people stuffing the room, you know, shoulder to shoulder, playing all these tunes from, from Randy's book mostly uh, or wherever else, but they were all tunes we all knew, or we learned them at those jam sessions if we were you know, new to it. Um, and it's really astonishing to me to this day, every once in a while, Dave or I will say, Hey, when was the last time you ever played, you know, whatever, some tune that we used to play back in the eighties, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, I remember that. And we sort of like slowly remind ourselves why the caller is talking through the dance. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is how it goes. And then we play it. I swear to God, note for note, we play exactly the same tune. Yeah. Unbelievable. After all these years of not playing it for, you know, 10, 15 years, whatever. We play exactly note for note the same tune because we both learned it at those jam sessions. 
Right. You know? And so we have the same sensibilities about it, I think, as a result. Maybe that's what tradition is. Well, it's one tradition. I mean, that's the tradition we're coming out of. Right, exactly. You know? Uh, but That's how it happens. But yeah, exactly. But you're coming out of that same tradition. You know, it's just things have changed a bit since you showed up. <laughs> so you're kind of coming from a slightly different place. It's kind of like, you know, one of those Darwinian evolution trees, right? It's like, here's this root and then, you know, all this stuff coming out. Yeah, you guys are like the coelacanth. <laughs> Hopefully we're not the trilobites. I think coelacanths are actually are still alive. Someone caught one. They once, are. Right? They are. I wasn't going to call you a living fossil. But <laughs> yeah, but you did. Also, I mean, we're not that far apart in age. We're we're farther apart in contra years well, than exactly. we are yeah, in absolutely. actual years. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the whole thing about... Because, you know, I think... There, there are these stages we all go through. I don't know if you went through this, but I certainly did because of just the personality type I am. I had all these rules. You know, you play for a dance. This has to happen. This has to happen. This is the way this has to be played. This has to, you know, there's all this stuff about, and I was like really rigid about it. It's like, oh. And then I keep seeing each of my cherished rules being violated with impunity by some other band. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong about that. And uh, at some point, uh, I realized there's there's really not a whole lot of rules here. <laughs> no. And it's fine for country bands to impose their own rules. That's one of the things that helps you like create a sound. And like you say, sometimes the a rigid framework actually leads to different creativity because you have to be ingenious to keep thinking of ways to be creative within those frameworks. It like pushes you in a different way that I really enjoy. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're playing on stage and you're like looking at the dancers, how do you interact with the dancers in contra dancing as a clarinet player? Well, it's a little tough because I got this thing in my mouth, right? <laughs> so you're not shouting at them. No, certainly not having a conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although I have had people come up to me on stage, try to start a conversation while I'm playing. I'm like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Can you see what's happening here? Um, but um, I uh, I have come very firmly to see the dancers as part of the band because mm -hmm. they're moving and making noise uh, with their feet, uh, with their mouths, whatever, with their hands. And so, uh, you know, there's this whole thing about like, well, you have to look at the dancers. And it's kind of like, yeah, I look at the dancers occasionally just to make sure like we're not like totally off the wall insanely although i feel like that's the caller's job anyway if we're going too fast then the caller has to say hey you're going too fast uh i kind of feel like it's not my job and i have a story about that too um but i hear them i hear the noises that they're making i hear their feet and of course there's always the uh, proverbial balance which is always like the focus that everybody likes to to go at but there's other things going on too, you know, um, the way feet, 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 people's feet are shuffling, the, the way mm -hmm. their the sounds seem to be all synchronized or not, you know, mm -hmm. and I play off of that. Um, you know, the, the really easy, famous one you can always do is like, you know, there's um, <laughs> uh, Petronella type dances. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, they have the little claps. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when people started clapping during the, the dance, Petronella, they started doing those claps, and we all hated it. Well, we should, I shouldn't say we all hated it. Many of us hated it. Uh, and, and we always, you know, we, if we were playing in some other communities, like, has this dance gotten the clap yet? <laughs> you know? Uh, but we've gotten used to it. But it becomes something to work with now. Uh, it's another it's another way that the band the dancers join in with the band and so you know there's the classic where you just drop out for those bars while they do their little petronola turns and claps and just leave them alone mm-hmm. don't even play anything at mm-hmm. all for like whatever it is mm-hmm. three four bars you know people are afraid of stopping I'm not afraid of stopping <laughs> yeah I mean the dancers just want to be part of it you know and yeah. whether it's like clock clogging or doing footwork yeah. or clapping or whatever and more power you know. to them you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's- so i have to tell you this story this is one of my favorite stories over the years um the the uh um for uh the the uh the four the caner band why does the, the foregone conclusions. conclusions thank you i was halfway there so the foregone conclusions, there was a tradition for a long time that the Thursday dance that Todd ran was uh, held at the Cambridge, uh, I think it was the YMCA. Uh, or is it the VFW? Yeah, no, the yeah well, the, his regular dance was the yeah. VFW. But on right. Thanksgiving, uh, the foregone conclusions were, in general, the band. And they did this routine that was absolutely hilarious and had some really hilarious side effects i think i'm not sure but i think the tune was the blue blue mountaineers um and they did this thing where at the end of a round of the dance they would start messing with the beats so at the end of the dance they would add one beat and then all you know and of course the dancers would you know ah, and then they would catch up and everything would be and then the next time they would drop a beat and then the dancers had to like pull back and, you know, try to catch up again. And then, uh, I remember this one time where they just, uh, they just stopped playing. And I, my recollection of the tune is this tune that just like came to a dead halt before you started up the next round of the tune. And that's why they could do this. You know, they come in either a beat late or a beat early or whatever. And then this one time they just stopped playing and the dancers kept dancing and they started singing and they, I swear they did at least one round of that dance with no music whatsoever. They might've done a second round with no music whatsoever. And then the, the four guns came in at the top of the next round. And it was just this like big moment. So why not? Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, like when you were talking about country music, you, you know, you said the phrase wild abandon. And then you also talk about all these sounds and the grit. And I think of that's what I love about playing contra dances is this like grit, this sense of abandon, this like it's a little rough and tumble. It doesn't have to be perfect. Right. And you can kind of do whatever you want to yep. as long as you decide what is the basic integrity of the dance and even then you can mess with that like the foregone conclusions and lots of other folks have been known oh, to do we've, right we've it's done like, that the lizards have done that yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Thank you.
Uh, you know, the whole point is, you know, I go, I go back to that Dick Crumb quote. People just want to dance to beautiful music. And as long as we're having fun and the music is beautiful and people are dancing and inspired by it, I'm good. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
there's things that I would rather not happen sometimes. Um, but, you know, those are choices that other people make and, you know, more power to them. You know, I have, I have my sensibilities and I'm sticking to them. That's, but they're, they seem to keep changing too. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of your sensibilities, who were some of your biggest influences in terms of the fiddlers that you were listening to or other clarinet influences, like you mentioned jazz or maybe classical music. And what are you listening to now? <laughs> what am I listening to now? Uh, well, you know, obviously Mary Lee and I played together for many years. Um, and so she's undoubtedly a big influence on my playing. Um, Rodney influenced everybody. I don't care who you are. Um, you know, he does amazing things. I did. I played with uh, Ruthie Dornfeld quite a bit for a while. Uh, she was fun. Uh, and I, I, I learned a lot from her. I'm still like sort of, I feel like I'm still learning things from my memory of playing with her and some of the stuff that she's done. Um, she's just a phenomenal fiddler. I just, I cannot say enough good things about Ruthie's playing. She's just unbelievable. Um, Alistair Fraser, uh, speaking of wild abandon, he and I uh, at Scottish Week would get really, really drunk and just play shit. <laughs> and I just have this memory at like two or three in the morning at Scottish Week and Alistair's hair is completely sopping wet and flying all over the place and he's just sawing away and I'm playing and doing whatever it is we're doing. And uh, it was very cathartic. It was very good. <laughs> I think I learned a lot from him. Uh, gosh, who else? There's a bunch. Um, you know, just basically all the people that, you know, were the fiddlers that were playing in New England at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, when I started, especially when I started playing saxophone, I started playing saxophone in the 90s. Um, I came across my first tenor sax and fell in love. Um, for one thing, the saxophone is a much more sane instrument than the clarinet. The clarinet is just stupid. <laughs> um, but it's still who I am. I mean, it's like, you know, that's that's my instrument. And I that feels like closer to my voice than anything else. Uh, I was just saying to someone the other day, we were doing some gig. I said, yeah, I kind of feel like a, a clarinet player holding a saxophone. But, you know, I do all right. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's what happens when a lot of piano players learn piano accordion, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, I used to play saxophone, like, all through high school really? and college. Really? Poor thing. Yeah. Why'd you stop? <laughs> Why'd you stop? Well, speaking of poor thing, it was because I had dorm roommates. Like, oh, I just didn't yeah. have anywhere to practice. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and I could play and only drive my family crazy. But I didn't <laughs> want to go to the practice room. And yeah. if I did want to practice, I wanted to practice piano. So I kind of just—it's not a roommate-friendly instrument. It's a, it's a lot, or, or I have to say, a wife-friendly instrument because I was just learning to play <laughs> saxophone when I was still married to Susan. Uh, I think it drove her a little crazy. <laughs> but I—I I don't think of the saxophone as a very hard instrument. Like it's—it's it's not like the trumpet or like the French horn. Like to be like, <laughs> yeah, what right? makes the. Like anybody who plays French horn is just insane to me. I'm like, how does that even work? Yeah. <laughs> but how is the clarinet harder than the saxophone? I'm curious. Or like weirder. Um, What's uh, before I before we leave this, I just have to say Matt Glazer said to me once, he he played around with the saxophone a little bit. And he said, This is a toy instrument. Like, what's the big deal? 
right? Yeah. It's so satisfying. Like fiddle is also a weird instrument. Yeah. Like millimeters of where your finger is on the fingerboard affect your entire pitch and everything. Like it all happens in like three inches of space. How do they do yeah, that? Yeah, why don't they put frets on the damn thing? I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> but uh, so uh, it's hard. Uh, uh, this may get a little bit technical for some people. Maybe you'll like this, but. The one clarinet player listening to this <laughs> is going to enjoy this part of the podcast. Right. So Clarinet player, this is for you. All wind instruments uh, basically operate on the octave. So you play a scale with a certain set of fingerings, and then you press this little thumb key, and now you're playing the same notes an octave up. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's the way a sane, normal, rational wind instrument works. The clarinet right. does not operate on octaves. It operates on octave and a fifth. So... I play all these notes in the lower register. I hit a thumb key. I am now playing notes that are an octave and a fifth up from those notes. Oh. And so what this also creates is there's this little thing we call the break. So there's all these missing notes between those two registers, right? So we have all these funky little weird keys to help us bridge that gap between the two registers. Mm -hmm. And then what this ends up doing is you have... Uh, and again, this happens especially in the key of A. There are certain situations where there are certain notes. You have to figure out whether you're, you know, there's these pinky keys. You have to figure out if you're playing it on the left pinky or the right pinky because there's a couple of notes, well, one note in particular, that you can only play on the right pinky. So if you end up landing on one of those notes that's on the right pinky and you need to get to that one, the only thing mm -hmm. you can do is play that same note on the left pinky to get to the note on the right pinky right and it's a pain in the ass so which reminds me of another story it was one year at nefa dan beerbaum and i were talking uh and he's a clarinet player and he was like he was uh ooing and aahing i was like wow you get this how do you get this like really kind of bluesy jazzy sound you know especially in the key of a and i pointed out to him that that note so in the key of a that note that i play on the right finger is a right? Mm. In that upper register. And that note that I'm trying to get to is C sharp. Guess what happens if you just lift your finger up to go press that key? You go A, C, C sharp. Add a little bit yeah. of a slur and you've got yourself a nice little bluesy slur into a C sharp. Yeah, you've got your flat third right there. <laughs> Absolutely. And he was like, no, it can't be that simple. It's like, I'm cheating the whole time, guy. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just like leaning into some of those things. Well, it's the instrument, right? It's what it's what I have to work with, right? So, mm -hmm. what are some of your favorite things to do on the clarinet for contradances? Oh, wow! That's now there is a question I would never have expected. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, what are my favorite things to do on the clarinet? Whew. Uh, musical or otherwise yeah it's changed over time um now uh huh i i think really it's not any specific technique thing or anything like that 
Um, it, it's funny, you know, what comes to mind is uh, on our second CD, the Lizard CD, and um, I don't know if you played this cut with Dave or Kate, but um, it's the one it's the one that always comes to mind when I just think this is a perfect recording. This this is a perfect track. Mm. It's the it's the first track on the CD, Log Cabin. Mm-hmm. And it starts off, and this is, and you have to keep in mind, again, we did not arrange any of that CD. We just like walked into the studio and we said, okay, uh, you take it, you take it. We'll do something here. Uh, let's go. And then we just go off into our little booths and, and record. Mm-hmm. And that log cabin uh, track, I don't, I think it was just the one take. I don't think we did anything other than that one take. And so Kate did something she'd never done before on that tune. She started up this vamp that was like, oh, this is cool. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was supposed to come in on the first round and I started off. I was, it's like, I'm going to play, I'm going to play the melody. Right. And then I got about maybe a bar or two into the melody. And then I just thought, no, I'm just going to hold this note for a while and see what happens. And then I just improvised the rest of the way through. (laughs) (laughs) I like doing that kind of thing.
<laughs> we did. It reminds me of a time when we were playing at Greenfield and uh, the uh, Naomi Morris and a couple of other the, the young young women who were getting into playing for contra dancing at that time. It's like her her cohort, uh, Rodney's daughter, uh, I think was there. Oh, LV, LV, yeah, LV was there. I yeah. think. And they were just sitting in the back of the stage at Greenfield, and we're just and the lizards are kind of playing away. And at some point, we probably we might have switched. I think we did actually. You know, this is before we got too into the one tune thing. But uh, at some point, we we started playing um, uh, Irish is Heart to the Ladies. You know that tune, right? Yeah. And so awesome A jig. It's an A. <laughs> yeah, it's an A jig. But uh, you know, it's like it's a great blues tune. Which is the way uh-huh. we were playing it at the time. Um, but so we switched into Irishman's Heart to the Ladies. Nobody took the melody. And we were all just kind of like jamming um, the chord changes of uh, Irishman's Heart to the Ladies. And afterwards, I think it was Naomi Cameron was like, you didn't even play the melody until the second or third time through. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> I like doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> Was there, were there other contrabands like not playing the melody? Did that feel scandalous? Did, 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 were the dancers or the caller like, where's the tune? Or was that a pretty normal thing for you guys to do then? Uh, well, it became more and more normal. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I can't believe nobody had done that before. I can't believe nobody did yeah. that before. Some, someone had been, right. must have been doing that. Uh, but yeah. you know, I mean, the big band at that time in those days was, uh, you know, like Wild Asparagus. And it's like, Certainly at that point, my impression was, and I believe this is true, is like everything was worked out ahead of time. Nobody did anything that wasn't part of, because they practice a lot. The lizards never practice. We don't know what we would practice if we were going to practice. Um, but, you know, they, they worked out these arrangements and they worked out these things to play. And I can't imagine a band like Wild Asparagus. Definitely not a band like uh, Nightingale. You know, uh, that would probably, maybe not offensive, but just in bad taste. <laughs> if they were to not play the melody, you mean? Well, they, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, pro- I'm projecting onto them the idea that maybe what we were doing was in bad taste. Oh, I, I see. Because <laughs> <laughs> they would never do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, I think. Like both those bands have arrangements. We'd have to ask them. I think, of course, not every note is scripted, right? It's like you're right. improvising within your arrangement. Right. I'm sure that like every time the arrangement comes out a little different. And then there's other things you probably play note for note every time, you know. But uh, that would be a great question to ask them. I don't think it was all scripted, but certainly there wouldn't be a time when maybe nobody's playing the melody for some length of time. And I play with bands that aren't that rehearsed and usually... If the melody is not happening, there are players who have this immediate instinct to think, oh, no, this is terrible. I must fill this space. The only time that has become a problem in the lizards uh, is when at the end of a round of the tune, we all decide to stop playing. Oh, and then (laughs) then it's like, is it over? (laughs) Then it's just over. Well, and then immediately one of us goes, oh, my God, (laughs) starts playing the melody. Right. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I mean, if, if we stop playing, you know, if everybody stops playing at the top of a B, that's cool. 
Yeah. And I mean, today's concert dancers, and for the most part, are pretty used to that. They're not going to freak out if the tune's not there. You know, as long as you give them something phrase enough, they can dance to it. It's not traditional. Or something. <laughs> well, it is now, for better or for worse. Exactly. My point. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I thinking? Oh, I don't know. Some thought flitted through my distracted, chaotic brain. Um, what are your biggest influences that you bring into your contra playing that come from outside the contra tradition? Like, well, you know, I'm clearly, absolutely, um, uh, Bulgarian music, Eastern European music, uh, Romanian music, uh, because that's the music that I most bonded with during that period when I was playing that music. And and you can see it, it's like I try to sneak in uh, um, the the, the the Hijaz scale whenever there's an opportunity. In fact, we did, I think we did this on our recording. We have a thing that we do with uh, opera reel where we just change the mode. It's basically exactly the same melody, but we change the mode to uh, what some people call uh, Jewish minor um, or, you know, that, that Eastern European scale. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, and then there's like, there's a whole sequence we go through. Speaking of arrangements, we do have this arrangement where, but it's, it's never quite the same every time, obviously. But mm-hmm. we'll, you know, uh, I'll give the nod to Kate and uh, and then we'll switch into that that Eastern European mode. Uh, it's actually kind of uh, derived from uh, the Turkish Makam system. And uh, we'll play that for a few rounds. And then we switch to another mode. Uh, uh, still, again, more or less playing something like the melody as much as you can in that mode. And then we'll do that for a couple of rounds and then we'll switch back to the original mode and do that for a round or two. And then we come blasting in on a big, you know, D7 or uh, A7 chord, is it? It's in D, right? So we come blasting in on a big D7 chord and then go back to the straight major original opera real me- melody. So mm-hmm. that's our arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, a, a lot, uh, I think a lot of the work that I did trying to learn fiddle embellishments and everything, I think they deteriorated mm-hmm. over the years into basically, you know, Eastern European clarinet techniques. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a clarinet. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of cool ornaments you can do on a clarinet that you can't do on a fiddle. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's funny. Uh Betsy Branch hired me to do uh, the uh, Portland Rebels a few years ago. And uh, I, I was one of the ringers because it was, uh, it had a lot of uh, Eastern European Bulgarian type music in it. And uh, <clears throat> so, and Betsy, you know, hadn't ever played that music before. So we actually worked with her a bunch, you know, to sort of like do a reasonable uh simulacrum of uh, Eastern European fiddle playing. And I got to say, she did a brilliant job. She's, she's an amazing fiddler. She, uh, um, she got the, she got the feel of it down real quick. Mm-hmm. It's great. So, yeah. And I, you know, other than that, uh, you know, I grew up listening to things like rock and roll. And, uh, and then once I picked up the sax, 
the, the real irony of the sax is when I was in college as a music major, I hated the sax and I hated jazz. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Uh, but uh, when I took up the sax and I started listening to a lot of jazz, um, you know, it's like I, I was really taken with, you know, some of the, the greats from, uh, you know, the 50s and before Stan Getz, uh, Lester Young, um, Pee Wee Russell, I mentioned before, is a clarinet player that I really liked. I discovered, oh, uh, one of the, one of my cohorts in the international, uh, you know, the uh, guy who played a lot of uh, Bulgarian clarinet lived in California. Uh, he sent me a tape, which I now was able to purchase. Uh, it's a jazz recording of Creole musicians in um, uh, Louisiana. Um they, uh, I can't remember the clarinet player's name, but he was sort of in the same area with, era with like Johnny Hodges and um, there's all these clarinet players obviously in, in Louisiana. And I listened to a lot of those guys and got a lot from them. Edmund Hall was just totally fell in love with his playing for a while. Uh, another one of these New Orleans jazz clarinet players. So all of that stuff is in my ear and um, and then I don't worry about imitating it or trying to learn something from it. I just figure, yeah, I heard it. It's in my ear. Uh, I'll play with it. I, and I do. I end up playing with it. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, it's like it's a dance, right? If it doesn't work, well, I'll try it again. See if I can get it to work next time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's worth trying it a few times to see if it'll work. And then after a few times, you know that maybe it will or won't. Yeah, maybe it's time to give that one up. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was intrigued before when you're talking about the amount of swinginess in different kinds of music. I have been the last few years, like as a rhythm player, just obsessed with groove and thinking about it and analyzing it. And <laughs> I'm curious about your thoughts about it as a melody player. And I don't know. Talk about groove. What do you want to say about groove? It's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to talk about, really. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you say groove, you know, my mind, of course, immediately goes to, well, you know, there's Bulgarian groove and there's, you know, um, Irish groove and there's Scottish groove. Um, and New England is, you know, you know, it's a big bush now. So who knows what? actually means in there people having a good time dancing hey groove is good um i know one thing that comes up for me um i think i think it's one of those things that's possible to overthink i think that's kind of probably what happens a lot um you just have to just play along with recordings play with other people mm -hmm. um and don't engage your head so much as your heart and your body. Mm. And, and, and when it feels right, it feels right. Yep. You know, that's what it comes down to. There's, cause when you start talking about it and thinking about it, there's, there's a, in fact, we were just talking about this the other day uh, with some, something that's been happening uh, in the Contra world, which I don't know if I want to get into or not, but um, in jazz, uh, I, I took a bunch of jazz lessons from a guy named Billy Novick in the Boston area. And um, I'm a terrible student of his. I mean, it's like I took probably a dozen lessons with him over the years. And I feel like I'm still trying to figure out what, how to incorporate some of the stuff that he talked about. Um, but really helpful. 
really and a really good guy. Just I love Billy to death, and one of my big influences on playing. <laughs> he who famously said to Kate Barnes one one day, it's like, yeah, you know, Bill starts coming along really well, and then he goes on one of these contradance tours, and he comes back and he's all squared up again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, one of the things that Billy would talk about, so, you know, when you talk about swing in jazz, you know, that's kind of in a way where the term probably came from. Uh, you mm-hmm. think of the uh, triplet eighth, right? It's not just da 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 It's da 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 Right. Uh, and I'm sorry, that doesn't swing. <laughs> it's more than that. And it's not really a triplet. And it's not really a dotted eighth quarter kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and what he talked about was uh, that swung note, that triplet, 16th, whatever it is, actually just has a little bit more weight than the other note. And maybe a little less time. But it's like oh, the way you weight that note as opposed to like da, 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 da. You know, it's like, Oh, uh, I, well, I can't think of any tunes, you know, that, to do that. But, you know, it's like if you follow that as a technique, you will not be swinging. You know, whatever whatever note values you want to choose, you will not be swinging. It's a feel. So mm-hmm. I go back to, so play along with recordings, you know, get the feel of it. Don't overthink it, but feel it. It's mm-hmm. in your body. It's in your heart. That's where it's got to be. And I, I would apply that to any traditional music, you know, that this sounds like a Bulgarian playing it versus some Polish-American guy in Boston playing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not that there's anything wrong with that, because uh, one of the things that I got criticism for during my international days was that my feeling was we can't sit here trying to replicate what they do on these recordings or you know what these Bulgarians are doing. Um, because you have to make it your own on some level. And, you know, that was, that was heretical, you know, and that, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what led to like, Oh, well, contradicts, I live in new England. So if I play new England contradicts music, who can argue with me? Well, it turns out a lot, but, um, I had, I had better standing. <laughs> yeah. So in my way, I've made contradance music mine, you know, and I have some people who are willing to put up with what I've done to it. And uh, people seem to like it and they hire me and uh, life is good, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for a lot of musicians with some amount of technical skill, you can play music from a different genre and and read it off of sheet music, but the feel isn't necessarily right. And it comes from that groove, that like that invisible nuance of it's it's not just you know, the amount of swing in your eighth notes or the beat placement or the emphasis, or are you on the front of the beat or the back of the beat or just all these a million yes. little yes invisible variables. <laughs> right, exactly. And when you immerse yourself in something long enough, you just, if you're a good listener and you spend time immersing yourself in it, you can just kind of through osmosis lock into that groove. Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly it. I, I, you... Um... You just have to do it a lot and you have to be with people and play with people and, and lock into them. And yes, it happens in your ear. That's where it starts, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then how does that make you feel? How does that make you move? Um, what is it? 
you know, and just, you just keep adjusting there. Yeah. A, an analog to that, there was a particular Macedonian clarinet recording. I, I was, you know, there, it was a dance that I was, I was learning and I would listen to it and I try to play along with the rec- recording. And I don't think I ever transcribed it or even tried to transcribe it, but I just, I think at that point I was like at that point of like, well, I'm going to learn the melody and then I'll just keep on honing in playing along with this recording a million times. And, um, you know, slowly hone in on what he's doing. And I would, you know, play with it, you know, practice with it for a few hours um, or more, you know how that goes. <laughs> and, and I would think, okay, I got it, I got it. And then we'd go and play the dance and I'd be playing it. And then I'd go back and listen to the recording after I'd played it a few times out in, out in the wild. And it'd come back and it's like, oh, he's doing way less than I think I need to do, mm. you know? And so then I'd find myself toning it down. And it wasn't about notes. It wasn't about embellishments. He wasn't really doing a whole lot of that. But the feel. Yeah. That was that was the thing that I, it just took me several rounds of that to sort of get to the point where, oh, I get it. There's a, there's a concept I have and it, and it just drives me crazy. I, I, I hate it when I hear other people doing it. I hate it more when I find myself doing it uh, because I know better. I talk about it. Um, <laughs> trying too hard. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's really easy to do in country music when we're trying to make it exciting and we, like, overplay. And sometimes that gets less a result from the dancers than if we just let the music be what it is. Just enjoy what you're doing. Put some enthusiasm in it. And you can just, you know, the the and this is another thing, talking about what's changed over the years. I have a really strong memory of dancing in the lower hall at Neffa. Um probably still the early 80s. And it was Bob McQuillan, April Limber, and Pete Colby, uh, the original New England tradition, I think they, the, they call themselves. And, you know, if you've listened to those recordings, if you've ever listened to April play, she plays the melody, ornaments and all, exactly the same way every single time. Pete Colby's just, you know, wanging away on the on the banjo, and he, I'm... I, I'm not as familiar with the banjo, but I have no doubt he's playing it exactly the same way or close to the same way every single time. Bob McQuillan, same thing. He plays he plays Bob McQuillan, right? So here's this trio playing in the lower hall, and it was the best dance music I think I have ever danced to. I, I went through moments over those years where I, I would listen to some, like Susan had a band with a couple of other women named Susan in the Pioneer Valley called, mm-hmm. uh, I think they call themselves the Susans. And, you know, and they very straight ahead playing, you know, just traditional in the New England mm-hmm. tradition band uh, sense of the term. And I would dance to them and I would just come away feeling like this is what people really want to be dancing to. They don't want to dance to this bullshit mm-hmm. that I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> but so that night at that, at that uh, Nefa at the, in the lower hall, I am totally grooving it on this band. They are fantastic. It's the best dance music I've ever danced to. And people are griping about how boring they are. Like, can you not hear? <laughs> but, you know, that was that was the period when things started shifting and we had to be exciting. We had to do stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, are you looking for ear candy and, like, constant stimulation? Like, is it a concert? But then there's that groove. And I think... 
like there I feel like there was a time when that was a very traditional groove to hear in contra dancing, right. like the Bob McQuillan sound, the boom check, like so the sound of boom check in general is not commonly heard. That was New England contra dance music. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of groove, or like if you listen to like the New England Chestnuts albums, those tunes are played with a certain kind of lilt and swing and the kind of boom check that's underneath them. And nowadays you hear a lot of different kinds of music for concha dance, but along with that comes a lot of different kinds of grooves, right? Like you could hear the horse flies, which is a way different groove or the clayfoot strutters versus like a lot of bands that are, I think of other bands as being like really on the front of the beat. You know, I think of concha music as being like that. Whereas I feel like the, the older style was more centered in the middle of the beat. It had this kind of swing and lift in it. Today's music is more out to the front of the beat, like a band like Great Bear. I feel like I could say that playing with Noah a lot. Like he's, you know, they're out on the front of the beat. It's exciting. It's edgy. I feel like the lizards definitely live on the front of the beat. (laughs) That's that's all Kate. She's totally like as far ahead of the beat as she can get. (laughs) Exactly. Like, like, you know, they say like jazz players sometimes are so far behind the beat. They're almost on the next one. I feel like with Kate, it's like the opposite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so that's fine because then you get to be like the counterpart to that, right? To like balance out the other side of the beat. If you want to, you can like play with that, I guess, if you want to be on the front or not. Well, you know, that gets to another point for me uh, that you play with the people you're playing with. You don't, you know, everything in in a band, to my mind, everything that happens in a band, every player has to do whatever they can to make everyone else sound good. Yeah, you know sure. that's the goal in my mind. You know we should all be basically supporting whatever it is that you're doing, and if that means playing off of you or kind of like having a tweak once in a while, uh, as long as you don't go overboard and do something that just basically discombobulates your bandmates, you know it's like mm-hmm. they got to be with you on that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one of the lovely things about playing with the lizards is kind of like, yeah, pretty much anything goes. <laughs> You know, it's like yeah. we can we can all count on each other responding to whatever it is that comes up. Uh, it may not work, but you know, we're we're good to go. <laughs> yeah, it's like how you would play with one person is totally different than how you would play with another person. I, that's my approach. It's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play if I'm playing with someone who's a basic boom chuck piano player and uh, doesn't know much beyond like maybe a five, seven chord, you know, and everything else is triads. I, I don't, I feel really uncomfortable doing anything more than playing the melody and maybe playing with the melody a little bit. Uh, but I'm not, I don't feel free to do all the things I might do with someone like Kate playing piano, you know? And I do, I, I do play with people who are you know pretty basic players and I love things as long as they swing. I love playing with anybody, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, problem, of course, is like these days, time and finding time to play with people. But mm-hmm. well, you know, like we're in the middle of mega band season right now, and so the Portland the mega Portland band. mega band, and uh, we uh, we have our we're having our final rehearsal, our dress rehearsal this Saturday, and we're going to do a concert uh, two Whoa. weeks later. And uh, I've been working on all these arrangements for the band and stuff. Um, but as a player, so we have 
what is it? Something like 40 or 50 people in the band this year. And you've got people who are like, could be, and may in some cases have been or are in, you know, like the Oregon symphony or the Portland symphony or something really, really good um, phenomenal players to people who are having a hard time playing the simplest melodies, you know, and it's a wonderful, wonderful group of people. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful sound. Um, and, uh, when I'm playing in that band, there's no improvising at all. I mean, the, mm -hmm. this, the, the, the joy I get from that is I'm going to play this melody exactly the way they've got it written. Um, and there's a joy in that for me, you know, to just play exactly what's written perfectly every time it comes, it comes around. And, mm -hmm. and the same thing with the arrangements. It's like I have, a, when I first started doing arrangements for the mega band, you know, I would come up with all these, like, I have this, like, really wild idea of what I want to do. Uh, and then I realized, no, that's not going to work in, in the Mega Band. Because to do these really crazy, wild arrangements, the band has to be on board with it. The band has to work with that arrangement. The band has to be able to respond to that arrangement. And this is not a band that's going to be able to do that. So the arrangements, in a lot of ways, are pretty simplistic. But I've been getting a lot of really good feedback on what, what I've done this year with the arrangements. And, you know, it's like, you know, again, it comes back to swing. Playing the melody just by itself really well with swing, you don't really need anything more than that. Right. It's true. It's nice when you can go beyond it, but, you know, you can have a really great dance experience dancing to some really straightforward music. Like, you know. New England tradition. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I miss hearing that kind of groove more in concert dancing these days. Yeah. Like it's just harder and harder to hear it. Yeah. Still happens, but I love it. Like I love like, you know, when you're at a festival and they have like the fest, like the Nefa festival orchestra or something. And it's like that groove again, that swinginess. Yeah. That yeah. Sound of a bunch of people. All, and it's just, it changes the whole vibe on the dance floor. Absolutely. Well, and Megaband normally does a dance once a year. This is supposed to lead right. up to doing the dance. And I just joined, I joined in uh, 2020. So we ended up not doing our dance. And uh, at the last minute, just before they closed everything down, we ended up doing our whole set as a, as a concert. Hmm. And, um, but, you know, it was like for me to be able to play in a band like that with no improvisation, no, nothing fancy, but to be part of a horn section, we had, uh, I think we had, did we have four horns that year? I think we had trombone, yeah, trombone, French horn, uh, tenor sax, and I was playing, or maybe uh, Norman was playing alto sax, and I was playing, and I was playing soprano. Um, and, you know, to be part of a horn section like that, it's just so fabulous. It's like, no, it's not, you know, big band, jazzy, blah, 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 and, fancy stuff it's but good solid music played with heart and swing mm -hmm. it makes me happy me too <laughs> that's my that's my happy place yeah like, i love doing fancy arrangements but the thing that is like that fills my heart the most yeah is just that simple good straight up groove and a good tune played well and it lets you like relax and like live inside the tune and just be in that space. And a good tune is designed for repetition. You know, they shouldn't need a lot of fancy things. <laughs> Ralph Page uh, was the one who said to me one time, 
If a good to, if a tune is good enough to play once, it's good to play. It's good enough to play a thousand times. Uh, and his other one was, well, if you have to change tunes, you certainly don't change key. <laughs> it's so funny because now I think one of the rules that people think is like, oh, you have yes, to change right. keys. You're changing tunes, and it's just like we've made up these rules for ourselves, like you yeah. were saying, you know. But you know, it's it's part of the tradition now. When I when I showed oh and the funny thing is so here's Ralph telling me this right, and so when I started playing uh, in the uh, early '80s uh, with uh, BLT and sitting in with Yankee and Junior and everything, and I think, uh, and I th- did you interview Mary Lee? Yes, I did. I think she talked Early about on. how that was the, that was a tradition that came up with in Yankee Ingenuity, three tunes medleys, right? Mm-hmm. And so BLT mm-hmm. always did that. We always had to pick three tunes for our medley, sometimes four. And um, uh, that was the tradition at that point. That's the way it was done. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, and then, of course, you know, I, I had so much fun hanging out at Southern Jams. Um where, you know, they play one tune for like four hours or something. And I just thought that was just so fabulous. And I love, because, you know, talk about getting inside a tune, getting inside of everything, right? right? You just like, you just zone out. You like, you totally get into this meditative state, you know, some sort of Zen, you know, meditation state that you get into. And we didn't necessarily plan it this way. I think Dave spoke to this, but when, when the Lizards first started playing, we were all like, totally into the improvising thing and we would pick you know the standard three tune medley or you know sometimes maybe only two but then you know we'd be having a great time playing the caller would turn it's like hey two more times it's like wait we haven't gotten to our second tune yet (laughs) and then we just gave up coming up with alternate tunes and so now that's the lizard tradition (laughs) yep exactly that's your tradition we made it up it's ours and not out of whole cloth either i mean that's the thing it's like we're all taking bits and pieces of various traditions that have come our way that we've all had experience with and uh, kind of pasting them together into our own little Frankenstein monsters. Mm-hmm. And some of them are really good. Mm-hmm. People keep hiring the lizards. God knows why. <laughs> <laughs> and like some of these things, like we're allowed to experiment and then these things don't have to be around forever. Like that's how I always thought when I started doing techno contra or whatever people call techno contra. I didn't call that, but it doesn't matter. That's what everybody calls right. it. So that's what it is. Exactly. That's the tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, I have to tell this funny story. I, I hope I'm not telling tales, but there was some gig. Oh, I think it was, it was uh, the Colorado gig, uh, Starry Nights something. Uh, we were doing this gig in Colorado, and there was a techno contra happening one night. Was it Stellar? So yeah, yeah Stellar. St- yeah, yeah, Stellar days. Stellar and days and nights. That's it. And uh, and I remember we were uh, Dave and Adina Gordon and Kate and I were just kind of hanging out in the cabin, and uh, Kate, you know, got dressed up and said, "I'm going to go to the techno contra." And we were like, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> you?" So Kate went off, went to the Technocontra. Adina and Dave and I are kind of hanging out, just talking. And uh, Kate comes back and says, well, that was disappointing. <laughs> we're like, why? What happened? She says, I was expecting something new and different. It's like they're basically just doing contra dances to different music. <laughs> it was too conservative for her. Right. <laughs> I was expecting them to do something new and different. <laughs> 
That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for our listeners, you've alluded to it, but you have a website where you've collected a bunch of articles over the years and you put some of them back up on this website. They're pretty old, but about they're there. <laughs> yeah. You know, about all sorts of things like community and like dance consumerism and like, you know, the music and all sorts of things, which are interesting. And we'll post a, a link to that in the podcast notes for people to check it out. Um, but I want to just give you a moment. If there's any of these things that you want to talk about, like the, the opinion corner. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, do I have opinions? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, it's funny. I've heard other people reach this point and, uh, and uh, they can't think of anything. And of course me listening, I was like, Oh, I can think of things. Right, always. And I'm sitting always. here thinking, man, we talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, got a lot of stuff off my chest. That's good. <laughs> I mean, where where do you think country music is headed, knowing that tradition keeps getting redefined as we live our lives? What do you think might happen? Uh, what do you think of where it's going? It's going to go where it goes. I mean, uh, if you take that long view of tradition as not something that you know, not one of the snapshots and say, okay, here's what contradancing is. But you take it as a living tradition. As long, you know, it's back to the, the Dick Crum quote. Uh, as long as people want to dance to beautiful music, something's going to happen. And it will be, what, and, and the, that generation will make it whatever it is they want it to be. And I have no idea what people are going to want it to be. I mean, it's like you see some of the touches of it. Now with the you know the young people coming up now, and I think it's brilliant. I'm not particularly interested in it necessarily, uh, but they're making it their own, and that's exactly as it should be. And the generation after them, who even knows, right? But mm -hmm. as long as people want to dance to something that sounds vaguely like contra dance music, uh, they'll figure it out. Uh, there's a there's another thing, too. I mean, it's like we're seeing, we can see the moving pieces in, over the course of our life, right? I talk about this big change that happened in the 80s. Um, mm -hmm. Ralph, Ralph Paley was already getting pissed off at what was going on in the early 80s, never mind what happened after that, right? Because his concept of contradance was something that was in the 30s and 40s, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then Dudley Laufman came along and, you know, basically ruined things as far as, uh, you know, that crowd was concerned. And then even Dudley Laufman, who is one of the, uh, has been credited with like the incredible boom in contradancing that started happening in the 60s and 70s, right? Um, there, he went through a period at least uh, for a little while of not being very proud of what he had done to contradancing and seeing what it had turned into. Because the next generation come along and started making it their own, right? And now here we are talking about techno-contras and gender-free contras and all of that stuff. Uh, and you know, I'm feel a little out of it because I'm part of that generation from the seven, the eighties, the eighties cohort. Um, but the nineties and aughts cohort, you know, is now creating their own thing. And the group that comes along in the twenties and the thirties, we'll see what they come up with. And I wish I could live long enough to see what it turns into, but I wouldn't try yeah. to second guess what they're going to turn it into. It's like. You know, every generation, you know, it's like my generation grew up listening to the Beatles. You know, the, the current generation is like, who? Beatles? What? <laughs> so, 
But I, I have confidence that people will want to continue dancing to something like this music, you know, and doing these mm-hmm. kinds of forms in one way or another. Mm-hmm. But each generation has got to make it their own. Or it's like, why, you know, it's like, what, they're going to try and imitate us? I didn't try to imitate Ralph's generation. Why should I? Mm-hmm. You know? You didn't try to imitate them, but yet you were informed by them. You know, like you talk about you and Dave going to those same sessions and learning the same things. Absolutely. And like, but that's you didn't. But that's a different thing. I mean, that's like taking what is in front of you and saying, you know, okay, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to learn how it swings, right? Yeah. And right. then, uh, and then, oh, what if I tried this? I kind of like doing this. You know, something that April Lumber never would have thought of. And here's the thing about April. Uh, she saw what was happening at the end of her life, and she loved it. She loved what people were doing with with New England music. And she wasn't going to do it herself because that's just not the way she plays. It's not her. That's not her DNA musically. But she really appreciated what was happening as the newcomers were coming along and, and doing their thing. That's the tradition. Mm-hmm. Like that old Hungarian guy who doesn't even like the way the kid is playing his music. He's playing all the right tunes. It's swinging in the way that he thinks it swings. But this old guy kind of like, eh, you don't know how to play for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not the same. No. And good. As far as I'm concerned, it shouldn't stay the same. And I think that's part of the problem with the word tradition. It's like, I think there's this idea that when you say, what's the tradition? That, okay, now I'm in this box. I have to like, everything's set in stone and I have to do it this way. Or I have to break the tradition. It's like, no, there's something in between that. There's like appreciating the tradition and then making it your own. Right. Or just letting it be your own. Like you don't even have to try too hard to make it your own. It will be your own whether you want it to or not. Like that's what I love about tunes. They get filtered and passed through every person who plays them slightly differently as a function of who they are. Right. Right.
Well, and that gets to the other thing too, you know, about the idea of tune mixing. It's like never do an Irish tune with a Scottish tune. Mm -hmm. But I half the time I'm not even sure where these tunes come from. Sometimes I find out they're not either. Yeah. <laughs> that, right? But I but I also I've come to the point where I don't care. Uh, it's like the tune itself speaks to me. And so I work with the tune. And maybe later I'll find out, oh, it's an Irish term. It's like, oh, that's probably why I like, started using some of my faux Irish embellishment shit that I do there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those instincts kick in there. Yeah, because, I mean, but it's it's about the tune. I don't, I don't really worry about where it came from or, you know, whether I should mix it with this other tune because it's not from the same country or the same culture. It's kind of like, well, do the tunes work together? And, and, yeah. and I play them very differently. Uh, a real classic example for, for us. So our second CD was named um, <coughs> after the tune uh, Rainy Night Montague, right? Yeah. So George Reynolds wrote that tune. He's kind of like an old-timey feel fiddler, you know, uh, living in New England. But he has he's kind of has that sort of old-timey feel to his playing. And he wrote this tune, which I, I, I don't know how it sounded when, oh, actually, I kind of do. I have a recording of Rainy Night Montague with George playing it. I well, just cool. I just realized, yes. So George wrote this tune. People started playing it. It was getting some popularity. And one day, when we after we had started picking up, and we were having a great time playing that tune. We just loved playing that tune. And one day we were working with Lisa Greenleaf, and she was, you know, talking about the dance that she went. You know, Dave and I, you know, we look at the card, figure out, like, what kind of tune would work with this. And we looked at the card, and we are like, oh, this is perfect for Rainy Night and Montague. So we handed it back to, to Lisa, and she heard us say Rainy Night and Montague. And she's like, no, no, I hate that tune. And we're like, trust us, Lisa. You're going to love it when, when we get done with you. And uh, so we insisted on playing the tune. It turned out it was absolutely perfect for that dance. Uh -huh. And Lisa was like, okay, yeah, that's not the tune I was thinking at all. <laughs> we had our way yeah, with it. We, we turned it in. We lizardified right. it, you know. <laughs> yeah. The groove is different. The feel is different. Yeah. You know, another of these elements we didn't talk about, but like the amount of backbeat that you play with affects the tune and like all these different things. This so, you know? See, this is the thing. It, there's so many people who feel like, oh, 32 bars, A-A-B-B, that's so limiting. How can you possibly survive that? It's like, do you know how much you can do within that form? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, was it the Kate Barnes quote, the piano, 88 little mistakes waiting <laughs> yes. to happen? <laughs> There's also like a concha dance tune, 30 bars of mayhem or something like we need a quote about what you can do in 32 bars. <laughs> Get on okay, it. Okay, we'll think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been so fun to talk to you. Oh, me too. Is there anything else we should talk about? Anything else you want to leave us with? How about one of your favorite moments on stage? Do you have like a good dance story for those moments where you're just like i love this um this i've heard other people talk about this on your podcast uh the the thing that immediately came to mind so it must be at least one if not the favorite moment of of my uh experience we're on stage i don't even remember where this was we we're on stage someplace playing some dance and we we're just noodling around I mean, we weren't playing anything. We were just, you know, kind of dorking around in the key of D. And just kind of going, you know, do, 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 whatever, you know. There's no recording of this, so it's 
useless. But um, we're just kind of playing along. And of course, you know, we're contra dance musicians, you know, who've got that sort of uh, two beat bar, 32 bar sensibility. And so we're kind of playing along. Whoever was calling, I forget who it was, but whoever was calling decided that we were playing a tune and she started the dance. Uh-huh. And we're like, we haven't even picked a tune yet. And we've just been kind of like farting around in the key of D. And, she, and, uh-huh. and we suddenly realized, oh my God, the dance is going on. So we just kept playing. <laughs> and slowly some themes emerged out of the music. We knew where the top of the tune was, so we could, you know, link lock, lock into that. And uh, some kind of a mushy semi-tune showed up out of all of that. And it actually had phrases and everything. We were, we were totally making it up based on what we were watching on the floor. So, you know, it was definitely, you know, being made up for that dance <laughs> in that moment. And... And we got, it was fabulous. And, apparent, and and the one way I know that it was fabulous is after we got done, someone ran to us and said, what is that tune? <laughs> like, I have no idea. <laughs> what is a tune, really? Yeah, I mean, what do you mean, tune? <laughs> yes. You, do you mean that groovy mayhem in a key that just happened? Which, which is, I think Dave alluded to this or said this as well, too. It's like one of our favorite moments, uh, you know, this happens, used to happen to us a lot. Uh, we'd be playing some dance, you know, and just doing our one tune thing. And someone would come up and say, what was the second tune in that set? <laughs> it's like, uh, no. <laughs> ostensibly still the same tune or at least not a new tune we can all agree that there was not a new tune <laughs> well and this this gets to the other one of the other things that you've talked about in your podcast is like matching tunes with dances it's like mm. it's a lot fuzzier than i think a lot of people are willing to accept because it really depends on the band how you play that tune you know so yeah. you can you can craft a lot of tunes to just fit the mood you want it to to be in the moment um, absolutely. especially when you're like the lizards where we just like have absolutely no respect for anything. But, um, yeah, it's like, uh, granted there are tunes that probably would be harder to make that work and really don't work with a particular dance. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, for the most part, you know, Ted Sinello was the one he used to, uh, whenever he did a gig, uh, he would have his little dance cards and the band would pick a tune. If he had never worked with the band before, he'd just like say, here's something like what I'm looking for. And the band would pick a tune. And if it worked really, really well, he wrote down the band's name and the tune that they played. Mm-hmm. And then when the next time he worked with them, if he calls that dance again, he looks at his nose, oh yeah, you played this tune last time. It worked really well. Mm-hmm. You know, another band might be a completely different tune. Same dance, but a completely different tune because that tune wouldn't work. He, if he again, if he didn't know the band very well or didn't have any other suggestions, he'd say, "Well, here's what here's what other bands have played for this," and then that new band would, you know, play maybe pick one of those dances or play something that was like one of those tunes. Right. And then if it worked, he'd write it down. 
I remember even having that experience with them. I was, when I was learning, I was really for a while into the tune Vladimir Steamboat from Fiddle Fever. I love that tune. We play it all the time. Such a fun dance tune. And also I had just danced this concert dance with a really cool move in it where you like swing a neighbor and you go backwards and your partner's like waiting there to catch you. And it was like, so I was hanging out with my good caller friend, Chris Weiler in Boston and I was like Chris can we write a dance to go with this tune that also has that move in it and I knew nothing I wrote a dance that didn't progress and I was like Chris I need your help like so Chris wrote a dance with my various parameters and it went with Vladimir Steamboat it had like Petronella balances on the first three parts of the beat and that magic swing and catch on the fourth and I was so excited like I think it was a Mary Lee band that played it for the first time at the scout house. And when they debuted it, I was like, I was so <laughs> excited. And it fit amazingly. I think Keith Murphy was also playing. Um, and they played it with all this propulsion and energy. And then uh, we tried it a few other times and a few other bands played it. And some of them played Vladimir Steamboat with this like laid back kind of old time groove. It totally changed the dance. And all of a sudden yeah. the dance and the tune didn't fit well like the first time we were like, this is the best thing ever. And then the second time we we're like, huh, that was okay. But I don't get why this dance is so cool. It's, you know, it's like, it's like that pairing, <laughs> right. even if you take the same tune and the same dance played by different people, you can have a very different result Absolutely. every single time. And this is, and this is why, you know, again, it's like you, you want to have all these rules and you want to somehow like, you know, capture the lightning in a bottle. It's like, this is not that easy necessarily. No. You know, it's like this again. There's a lot of freedom here that you know we needs to be recognized. I love that tune because that's another tune uh, in my band with uh, Betsy and her husband Mark. Uh, we do that tune because it's like one of my favorite tunes. And uh, yes. Betsy's the one who instigated in that in that band. Uh, we also play Vladimir's uh, using that uh, that European mode, that Eastern European mode. So, oh, so we'll I play see. it D and then we'll play it in, in that, in that wacky Eastern European mode for a few rounds and then we'll come back in on uh, a straight melody in the key of A. Oh, fun. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, it's yeah. a great, we, the lizards play it, uh, do the D to A transition as well. Uh, it's a, it's a great change. I highly recommend it if you want to try it. Is that the one, I think there was some arrangement that Fiddle Fever didn't like four keys. Was it Vladimir? No, that was, uh, I know the one you're thinking of. It's uh, Big John McNeil. Oh, yeah. And they just like keep going through the keys. keys. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now there's a a tune that does not work on the clarinet at all. Oh, (laughs) jeez. You know, like Vladimir's is already kind of a modal tune. It's already a Mixolydian mode. So why not mess around with it? Yeah, exactly. well, and it's just yeah. to get to to get to that mode. It's really at that point only uh, one note change in the scale. So right. And so and what's right. great about it is you don't hit that note until a few bars in. So nobody even necessarily knows that you've changed mode until all of a sudden you start hearing it kind of sneaking in. It's very cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Well, you know that makes me think. That's one of the things I love about chestnuts like chorus jigger money musk like when we talk about like my made-up combination of dance and tune don't always work it's like the fact that the tune to chorus jig goes with the dance is great but it's also the style in which you play it fits the dance yeah 
Yeah. And currently, we all kind of agree mostly on how we play Money Musk and Chorus Jig. You know, like, for now. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> yeah. But I, I think when a lot of bands play Money Musk, it's usually, it's a mega band thing at the end of a weekend or festival or something. You've got a bunch of people on stage, so we revert back to, like, a more boom chuck rhythm section. Because you kind of have to, vibe. Really, in a way. Yeah, you're not going to put some cool hip groove under Money Musk. Like, you could, but why? You know, like, it works so well with, like, the balances and the, you know, the, like, just everything. And maybe that's one of the few times where we have this, like, predictable groove, tune, dance kind of thing happening together. So they're doing Money Musk at weekends? Yeah. Oh, sure. cool. I mean, not every dance weekend, depends on the weekend, but especially things like, I know, like, a youth dance weekend, they always do Money Musk, and, and, like, when Elixir had a dance weekend, they did it there, and um, at Ralph Page, of course, they do all those dances, you know. Were were you at the, uh, at Kate's uh, LCA thing for CDSS? No, I couldn't, Uh, I couldn't make it, sadly. um, Yeah, because Money Musk is another one of those tunes that, you know, doesn't, fit well on the clarinet um so <laughs> yeah, on the occasions sure. it has come up you know dave, dave does a really good job of, of money musk uh so i just mm-hmm. i played dumbbeck on it oh fun <laughs> speaking of grooves <laughs> yeah that's fun yeah chorus jig's probably fun on the clarinet which what chorus chorus jig oh i love playing chorus jig on the clarinet yeah, yeah. that's a that's yeah. a fun one and and it has all sorts of, especially when you're playing with, uh, you know, a, a piano player or backup players who uh, who are, you know, more advanced than just simple triads. Man, harmonically, there's just like so much open space in that tune. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And then I do love opera reel as a switch tune. Mm-hmm. I just love opera reel. I mean, here's the thing. Like, we could talk about how you can't do it the same way and you need to improvise with it. But there's just also this great feeling of like, oh, this is how I like chorus right, jig. Right, you know? like, sure. There's this amazing familiarity. And if we don't give the dancers enough consistency, like they need to be able to relate to it. And it's like eating your favorite foods. It's that same feeling of comfort. So it's like we have to keep enough of those moments in our tradition where people are comfortable and happy and yet not let it get static or stagnant or prescribed or right you know. well it, it, again uh, people are there to dance to beautiful music and uh if it's not exciting them or not interesting to them then uh, they're going to move on and you know who can blame them so whatever you do whether you change the tradition or not whether you move it forward or not whether you do amazing things or just plain vanilla stuff uh, it's got, it's gotta just hit you in the heart. You know, it's just, this is where it happens, you know, not here in the head. You know, it's funny. Um, that was such a great way to end this episode, but I had to butt in cause, um, I was just reminded today I was reading this like botany forum cause I'm a plant nerd <laughs> and they were like, we, we talk about things being vanilla as if they're boring and people are like, just remember that vanilla is like one of the most expensive spices in the world. And for many, many years, it was this extreme luxury. It's like this orchid and it only flowers like once and these, you know, like vanilla is something we take for granted yeah. and yet it's this amazing flavor yeah. and i feel like our fiddle tunes are the same way yeah. right a good vanilla tune is such a thing of beauty i, I can't resist telling you another story uh and uh 
hopefully this will, I, I don't know, I don't remember who this woman was, but she, we, we were done with some dance weekend and she really wanted to drive me to the airport after the weekend. And so, you know, we got in the car and it was very nice of her and all of that. And the reason she wanted to uh, drive me to the airport, it was like an hour or two drive, was because she wanted to pump me for uh, how to make her band more exciting. She wanted to know all the mm. tricks. And mm. and I was just like, can you play the tune well? Mm-hmm. And with heart, you know, start there. <laughs> so, you know, no, but I want to know what the tricks are. It's like, right. You know, we, we used to call it scream harvesting. You do these, you do these tricks. And the dancers go, wah! And all I did was like play a really high, loud note. And everyone's, wah! Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, it's stupid. Um, but, you know, if I am moved to play that loud, high note, then I will do it. But not yeah. just to get the crowd to go nuts. It's like, I, I right. don't like tricks. I don't like gimmicks. And anything, anything that the lizards do, anything that I do can become a gimmick if I'm if I've basically given up and said, oh, here's this thing that I do. I'll do that. It's like, does it make sense right now? Do I feel it right now? No. Then why am I doing it? Mm-hmm. That are great words to leave leave our interview with <laughs> and to think about. <laughs> I mean, we could sit here talking for months, obviously. <laughs> but I think our one clarinetist has left the session. So. <laughs> I don't blame him. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts. This has been so fun to chat oh, with you. Oh, same here. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you so much. Take care. Till next time. Okay. You too. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meta Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!